Rise and shine, back pagers. Rise and shine. Not that I wish to imply that you have been sleeping on the pod. No one is more deserving of a rest. And all the effort in the world would have gone to waste until, well, let's just say the series has come to an end. The right podcast in the wrong place can make all the difference in the world. So wake up, backpagers. Wake up and smell the ashes. everyone and welcome to this sixth and uh, final episode of PC Gaming Classics aka the Backer Page podcast. I am Phil Ivanyuk and with me as always is Jeremy Peel, the Alex Turner of games journalism. Hello Jeremy. Hello Phil. Hello everyone. How are you doing? Do you think I've made that happen yet? I'm, I'm doing well yeah. I'm, I haven't seen or heard anyone else call you the Alex Turner of games journalism yet. But mm, uh, No but uh, sometimes yeah. you have to sow a lot of seeds. Through sheer force of will. I saw a photo of uh, the charlatans from the 90s yesterday. Oh, yeah. And mm. uh, I don't know which member of the charlatans it was, but they looked the spit of Alex Turner on one of those really? album covers. Yeah. And it made me wonder whether he's like, he's an immortal musician and he's just kind of pops up <laughs> surreptitiously in, uh, in important groups throughout the ages. He's like the, Sa- the Count of Saint Germain, Saint Germain. Have you yeah. heard that? that- that the, legend, um, yeah. The, the Wandering Jew as well as the... You know, Kane from Command and Conquer, he's uh, partly right. based on the legend of the Wandering Jew. Who, oh, really? Um, I can't remember whether it's conflated with or it's the same myth, but there's a guy who who uh, mocked Jesus as he was walking to his crucifixion and, uh, and got cursed to walk the earth forever. And so there's like a suggestion that Cain... You know the villain of CNC is this guy who's existed forever, and uh, yeah, and that the- would also explain a lot of Kane from WWE and his um, <laughs> yeah his lineage as well, wouldn't it? Yeah, um, same guy. Because same I think guy. yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they're all the- and Citizen Kane. I think he was the father of the Undertaker <laughs> and Kane, wasn't he? Yeah, um, yeah, from the movie. So does Citizen Kane have hair, or is it consistent that Kanes don't have hair? <laughs> I can't remember. He's got a little bit, but then well, I can't remember. Was Citizen Kane wearing the mask as well? Did he come out? I can't. Yeah, no, don't remember. This, we've moved Need on from the the question, "What is the Citizen Kane of games?" to "Did Citizen Kane have hair?" <laughs> <laughs> and did he father WWE's Kane? I think wasn't. I don't know how how up you are on WWE. I mean, we're doing a games podcast, so it's extraordinary that wrestling's only come up now. Yeah, I think Paul Bearer was supposed to be both Kane and Undertaker's father. 
Right. See, this is, yeah. Okay, and at one point, interesting uh, so, family dinner, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> my my former editor on official PlayStation Mag, Ben Wilson. Um, hello, Ben, on the off chance that you're listening. Uh, amazing editor, amazing writer, great guy. He's got a book out uh, which everyone should read called mm. "A Year Without Social Media" or "My Year Without Social Media." But anyway, he was super into it, and I'm sure he showed us a video once. Uh, <laughs> this is going to go contrary to everything I've just said about him. <laughs> It was a video from WWE of like a woman giving birth to a hand, just a hand, like from the Adams family, just like a sentient hand. Right. And that had something to do with, I think that had something to do with Kane's family tree. We've gone massively off topic. <laughs> this is <laughs> this is the final episode. I, I wanted it to be like a big marquee, like da 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 da. Um, because, yeah, this, this brings our run of uh, 90s PC gaming classics to a close. It's the big one, Jeremy. It's Half-Life versus Quake. Yes. I mean, these. what we've done here is we've set this up as a kind of uh, a versus, right? That each of us is going to yes. take on the, uh, represent um, the honour of uh, one of these games. The truth being that we both love both of these games deeply. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. I think, you know, sometimes we've gone a little bit into the weeds, Um in 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 this series, particularly with Jurassic Park Trespasser, but uh, but this is like I guess we just didn't want to like um, retread old ground too much and like really go into. I think sometimes you get a better uh, sort of recollection of the era and representation of the era just by going off the beaten path a little bit. But like, given the opportunity to talk about nineties games for six episodes, like we couldn't not mention these games because they're both very dear to both of our hearts. So yeah, uh, and there's something about it being a, a a bit of a fight. It brings a little sort of the the urgency and panic that forces you to focus down on what makes something really good. Yeah, and I'm probably just going to talk about atmosphere like I always do. Um, <laughs> maybe that's why I've leaned so hard on. I've made so many top fives. I've tried to quantify. So we we should say at this point as well that uh, Jeremy, you are the the John Romero of this episode. You mm. are Mr. Quake. Yeah, uh, me. and me, I'm I'm on Team Half Life. Yeah, uh, and in order to get across how good Half Life is, I've made all the top fives. Um, in in the whole world, maybe I've just been making like YouTube listicles too long, and I can't put my thoughts down unless it's in list format. Um, but yeah, so the structure is going to be a bit different, is is I guess what we're saying. Um, so when we get into it, we're going to first focus on Quake. We'll do it chronologically. Jeremy's going to make the case for Quake. It's going to be a very easy case to make because I absolutely love it, and we've played it together in co-op. Night Dive's excellent remaster of it um, makes co-op pretty effortless. Shout out to Night Dive, just my favourite like entity in in the world. Like forget even game devs or companies, they're just my favourite thing. <laughs> um, so that's how it's going to work. But before we before we do all that, um, how are you, Jeremy? What's new? What have you been up to since uh, we last made a podcast together? Good. I've been. Um, I took a bit of time out of uh, work. Had my my brother's wedding, which was in France, and uh... congratulations to. Mr. Peel, yes, Dun- Duncan. Is Peel. he a younger Peel or an older Peel? He's a younger by uh, ah. three years. Yeah, and that was that was lovely. And uh, oh, many many congratulations to both of them. Yeah, and uh, no, now I'm back. Um, we were talking about this just prior to recording, weren't we? Like the build up to a to a big review. So I've I've signed up to review Redfall. But there's always that mystery period where you're not sure when the code's going to come in exactly. 
and mm. from the moment you sort of signed up to it everything else you do is is sort of a decision made to try and tee up that moment when the code comes in and you've got to hit the ground running with it so yeah every everything i'm doing every decision i'm making with work right now is about okay what can i fit around this uh this sort of black box period where redfall gets reviewed basically reviews are just a massive stress aren't they this this is what we're talking about offline like it takes so much more time to do a review obviously than it would to do the average feature it's so stressful because if you get it wrong well getting it wrong is quite a loaded way to say it but if your score is like way off then everyone will go on the metacritic and they will hunt you down if they love it and you hate it they'll hunt you down they'll make your life a misery if you love it and they hate it the same thing will happen uh and I like I worry that like will I ever work again if I've got something slightly wrong? Oh, I've given it a seven, and everyone's <laughs> given it sixes. I'm done, you know. Yeah. Uh, and and it just it takes ages. You're like, have I put enough time into it? Sometimes you just you can't finish a game, or it's an online game, so there's no end point. You're like, have I put the hours in? Mm. And I remember one uh, one game which I, I won't go into the details of for, for obvious reasons, but um, the developers or the publishers came back after I'd reviewed it. And so we just wanted to check that the writer has actually accessed the in, the end game content for this at the 300 hour mark. Mm. And I was like, no, I haven't. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't put 300 hours into this game. And I think enough. you know I haven't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. They, they wanted like, you know, they just wanted to um, build an argument as to why I was wrong. And it was that I hadn't seen absolutely, it was an MMO, right? Like yeah. I haven't put 300 hours into <laughs> I don't know if there were 300 hours available. Anyway, it's just always a massive stress. And I think the only reason we do it as writers is because there's a bit of prestige to reviews, um, probably from from a bygone era where pre-YouTube, slapping a score on something was like a super a super privileged position that you know played quite a big part in how that game performed. Yeah, And that's probably the bits that we paid the most attention to in games journalism when we were younger. Yeah. So we just... We put up with all the stress because we want to be, we want to emulate our, our reviewing heroes from from bygone years. And interestingly, I've, I'm just realising that there'll be a nice bit of like uh, of circularity there because I Half Life was the first review that I ever um, that I ever read, and I'll be referencing that later on. So there's a nice nice uh, bit of a robberus to this. Yeah, you, you're right. There's some kind of the flip side of that prestige is that now reviews aren't you know the most read things on um on game sites by a long way usually like if mm, you think of it yeah. from like you know the perspective of google well reviews are the time where every site puts puts out an article that is called dead island 2 review like good luck getting that to the top of google <laughs> <laughs> you know it's automatically <laughs> yeah. going to be one of the biggest sites and you're sort of giving away all your potential advantages in terms of angling something cleverly, using the right words, and it's as a result of that, like most reviews are not the they don't match the sort of the way that we build them up in our heads as writers. No. As like the most oh, this is a really important bit of writing for me. But it might be like the least read thing you write that month, potentially. Like that sometimes happens. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, you know, I guess it's just the, the way that we 
interact with websites, right? Like there are only a few websites that I would still just habitually go on. Like I would type in Eurogamer.net, for example, yeah. and just look at what's on Eurogamer. And like in my mind, I've allocated, I'm going to spend 20 minutes just reading Eurogamer today. Um, yeah. Most people aren't doing that anymore. That's why, you know, uh, and, and it's that model that online reviews are based on. Like when, you know, when sites like RPS were, were first established, it was, you know, it's a blog sort of um, model, right? So that you would just, you're like, oh, you know, John Walker, Kieran Gill and Jim Rossignol have, have gone off and done this thing that's very exciting. I'm just going to see what they're thinking at yeah. a given point. And like each day I'm going to go on there. And so when a review drops, you're like, oh, it's what RPS thinks about this game. Brilliant. The traffic's already there. The community's already there. They're going to click on on the thing. People just don't really, you know, Cracked.com uh, was another like great example of, of uh, a site that sadly really fell victim and i think they've sort of said this themselves that's not me throwing shade at cracked um but you know they they were built around that idea that that way of using the internet that you would just you would type in the home pages url and see what was going on there um, yeah and even even in the early days of facebook when you know sites were driving a lot of their traffic through facebook links um people would still do that and now now you just really don't now it's very uh info first so you know and and, and accessed via uh, a search engine or well yeah basically just a search engine or or if you really want someone's in, uh, opinion in particular they're probably going to um you know an influencer of some description so in conclusion reviews are very hard work and that's uh, quite a rant about that yeah and as, as a freelancer i tend to pick like two or three games a year that i'm gonna review um rather than kind of lean on them as like the backbone of my work because it, it's yeah, I think I would find that very stressful and and very hard to make work financially to just do reviews all the time. They're just so time intensive and and labor intensive. They're hard work. So yeah, absolutely. Imagine if you were known as like the JRPG expert and all you did was reviews and guides. Like, yeah, <laughs> imagine how difficult that job is. There, are, I can't, I can't think of who that would be. There obviously are JRPG experts out there. They must work like a hundred hour weeks, yeah. And like the commission to to hours put in ratio must must yeah. The maths don't quite line up. Whereas if you're like a walk, if there was like a new walking sim every week, then happy days, you know, make yeah. pay. But um, so so that's tough anyway. But uh, what we should also say is that since we last uh, made a podcast, two very important seismic changes have happened to the the back page. Um, podcast as a whole the parent podcast run by samuel and matthew are our overlords uh surrogate parents and um i'd like to think friends um <laughs> they have started releasing uh these episodes that we're making to the the normies the the general public so if you're one of the normies listening to this in the future um then hello uh, we absolutely love that you're listening to this this is great this podcast was originally sort of commissioned as a as a, as a treat for patreon backers uh, and now it's going out to the general public which is which is wonderful i hope everybody is happy with what we've made uh, and number two is that the back page is now at the time that we're recording this the number one gaming podcast in apple's podcast charts which is well, absolutely extraordinary um and many congratulations that's in the uk to... right it's not it's not worldwide but it's still uh well, don't bog down in details jeremy it's the number one it's the, i think it's just the number one thing that's being consumed globally yeah. 
Like, forget digital media or anything. Like, people are listening to the Backpage podcast more than they're buying milk right now. <laughs> and that's an extraordinary achievement. And many congratulations to Samuel and Matthew um, for what they've built. You know, listen, is it down to us and the fact that they... <laughs> I think it happened by literally by coincidence the same week that... Um, that the first episode of PC Gaming Classics went live to the public. But yeah. I, th- I think it was... Word was uh, out. And uh, the back page <laughs> yeah. instantly became the most ordered item on Amazon <laughs> or something. Yeah. It was like trying to get baked goods in, in 2020 or like baking ingredients. No, I, it, I think it was because they, they got a, a massive Reddit push um, and, and we have, have benefited from from that like extraordinary coincidence. But I just wanted to acknowledge that those things have happened because it's great news for the... Um, the Backpage pam- uh, family as a whole. Yeah. Um, so with all that said, and thank you for all your support, everybody, uh, as we've been through these six episodes. We hope you've really enjoyed them. Uh, we've both really enjoyed making them. Yeah. And the plan for the future is to do something else yeah. like down the line. Um, S- smarter people would have come up with a name for the thing and a plan before the final episode to ensure you know like yeah. continuity of listeners um we're not really like that we're not are we no <laughs> uh, but that you know what we're like by now <laughs> um i think probably what we do we definitely want to keep doing something whether that's like a um you know like a 2000s version of this for samuel and matthew or whether it's like a spin-off like something else whatever we do we'll probably try and go for like the um the late night talk show route of plugging the thing. So if you see Jeremy like conspicuously appearing as a guest again on a on a back page episode, it will be to talk about the the new podcast, and you'll probably find out that way, and and perhaps on the Discord as well. Um, so it's not it's not goodbye. <laughs> we want to do more stuff. We just haven't organised it yet. Yeah, and we'll probably put review wars at the centre of it because it feels like we're onto a we're onto a good thing with that. And it's been fun. Yeah, we've, we've sort of experimented and grown bolder with it as over the course of these these episodes. Yeah, exactly. And you know, with a with a wider remit, what could we what could we do with it? Um, mm. So yeah, that's that's like I think that captures our our imagination creatively, and it seems to have captured your imagination as as consumers of our of our content. So um, yeah, we'll we'll share more when we can figure it all out. Um, should we start talking about old games, though, Jeremy? Yeah, all right. All right, let's uh, let's take a little bit of an atmospheric break, get some Quake noises in our heads, uh, and then we'll reconvene and start talking about why Quake is uh, <laughs> apparently better than Half Life. Good luck. <laughs> Back in the interim, I realised that Half-Life's got no Trent Reznor in it, so actually, immediately, Quake is in quite a strong position. Um, so, so Jeremy, with that, uh, with that already in your favour, let's let's talk about Quake, the 1996 shooter that made brown the most exciting colour of the decade. Yeah, I mean, well, <laughs> I've, I'm overcome with the pressure of. Uh... 
of making the argument for Quake, which I shouldn't be because it's, it's one of the most beloved games of all time, but and rightly so. The weird thing about yeah. it is that it kind of like, whenever I read about Quake, you you start to realise that it was kind of a concession for it, that it wasn't as ambitious as they wanted it to be, which is feels mm. insane because it's such a it's such a a paradigm shift for shooters, such an enormous leap forward in how it looked and how it played and literally the new dimensions it opened up. Um, but they started making it with the sort of sense that it wouldn't just be a, a first-person shooter. It wouldn't just be an upgrade of Doom, right? It was uh, John Romero had these ideas about... Um, well, for starters, it was called Quake. It was named after a D and D character of his, a uh, guy who wielded oh, a, a, a hammer. Yeah, yeah. And this yeah. this this fella Quake, we'd play him in first person, sort of exploring. And the idea would be that it would be a sort of uh, a fairly seamless um, overworld you'd be exploring, which was not really yeah. a thing at the time. And uh, and then when you came into sort of combat encounters it would switch to a side on view almost like a kind of Tekken or a Street Fighter and, oh that sounds uh, bad yeah <laughs> <laughs> he was he, he was quite excited about this pitch that yeah, yeah. You would, it would be this sort of hybrid thing and also there was a there was a cube that would revolve around Quake a sort of companion oh. cube you could say oh and, okay uh, oh I thought I thought I was thinking of like the world was a cube that was like constantly shift. It's starting to sound a bit like, I guess, like Final Fantasy VII. Like you're just wandering around exploring an overworld, and then it snaps into like side-on combat. It's yeah, very different to Quake. Yeah, and there was uh, there's some suggestion of you know verticality, which you do get in Quake in the end. But like, oh, you could maybe somebody would hit you on a hill, and you go tumbling all the way down to the bottom of the hill. Doesn't sound that fun. Um, but you know, new. I suppose. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I mean, that's like one of the best things about Skyrim, right? Is shouting people <laughs> off the mountain. Well, yeah, so... others, not yourself. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's no fun at all. You just reload. <laughs> or like when you when your horse dies, that's that's like properly harrowing when you when you like because it's you that's done it as well. It's never yeah. someone that's pushed you. You've just like got overly ambitious trying to go up or down a mountain, and then the horse's legs just oh, buckle, yeah. and then it's oh, dead, it's and then you're almost dead, and you're just looking at the name, like on the HUD, it still shows the name of the horse, like <laughs> Philip's horse, but like it's dead. That's yeah. pretty, yeah. I, I'm glad that's not in Quake. Please continue. <laughs> we could have had Philip's horse is dead instead of Quake. Who knows? But, uh, <laughs> yeah, so... And it, it kind of like that's that's going to sound baffling to people, but it kind of makes sense if you look at it in the context of well, before Doom, it was making platformers in the vein of Mario, and before that, John Romero was making games in all sorts of different modes before a time where we really had fixed genres in games, right? So like, these guys are kind of used to the idea that you make something and then you make something completely different. And I think Quake, um, for a variety of reasons, is the moment when um, the industry kind of solidifies of like, oh, you have a shooter studio, you know, you have a strategy studio or a a simulation studio and you have a shooter studio and it became a shooter studio at this moment because they realized they had all of this kind of momentum and expertise and 
you know, there were kind of stories from uh, Quake's early development that John Carmack was busy making his incredibly innovative new engine tech and there wasn't a lot for, you know, the designers to work with. And Romero was, you know, playing a lot of deathmatch in the office and, um, you know, some of the other people who worked on the project have said, you know, he's a little distracted as well with um, <laughs> working on stuff like uh, Heretic, um, you yeah. know, outside of it and sort of promoting Doom as this phenomenon. And without that sort of like clear direction to something new, Quake just sort of became doom 2.0 because that was what everybody there was good at that's a very rare example of of the somebody's vision being stifled for the better right because as you've described it quake was going to be absolute bobbins like some (laughs) daikatana sort of material i mean maybe maybe it would make a lot more sense in, in playable form but uh considering the you know the overall like the end result of of quake the reality of it like I'm just really glad that whoever do you know who who was it that steered it that way? What do you think it was just sort of by default they ended up making a shooter because Yeah, the way it's the way it's told, and there's a really good making of Quake on uh Shack News that you can still give up uh dig up rather. And the good way it's News. told, John Carmack eventually sort of put his foot down and was like, Well, this is the way things are moving, this is what we know how to do, let's make this game. Uh and it's also around that time that Romero resolves to leave it software which he does mm. at the end of Quake. So in a way, it's sort of like, it's this failure, it's the death of classic id software and that partnership of the two Johns that, you know, is legendary and produced so much amazing stuff. But yeah, it's also, you know, a resounding success when Quake comes out and is takes the first-person shooter to a... Um, literally new levels of verticality and suddenly you can kind of um you're firing grenades and they're bouncing off surfaces at all angles and there's a soundtrack by Trent Reznor and it it almost feels like um you know the amplified version of Doom and it becomes hard to look back and play anything prior to it it's it's that sort of level of change which we don't ever really get in games anymore you know arguably we don't and I think I'm always yeah, going back to sort of reviewing, I think this is why I'm always disappointed when I when I review games and I always sort of <laughs> tend to skew quite low because I think like there was a time when, you know, FIFA 99 looked so different to FIFA 98. Yeah. You know, like some yeah. huge new innovation would have happened in the interim of like 11 months of development that made it look like absolutely transformed. Um, and, you know, I'm not just picking on FIFA there, like any, any sort of um, long-running series the pace of change was was so much faster back in those days and, and now it's like oh we've we've introduced like a new ai system that you can't really see yeah. or discern yeah. yeah it oh i mean the 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 leap forward from doom is is is, a, is pretty seismic a lot of a lot of it is the tech but like also is the fact that it was based on a D&D character, is that the origin of its like slightly medievalness because that's my favorite thing about doom it's like futuristic hybrids like medieval worlds yeah like satanic stuff everywhere like i guess a bit like doom but it's got this it's got this weird old english thing going through it as well which seems like it might be uh, it might come from a D place yeah yeah i think 
that's definitely part of the origin. If you look at the level names in Quake, like especially Romero's levels, they're called things like the Dismal Oubliette. <laughs> yeah, oh, like, that's a good is, level, actually. This is great. And they build out these, like, you know, there are literal dungeons in those levels. There are castles. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah, it has this really distinct mood, um, which I think is brought about partly by that, like, the fact that it defaulted to something they knew. They were building, like, oh, okay, this is going to be quasi-medieval sort of thing, but uh, we're going to have guns because we know guns feel good and we know how to make them. And somewhere in that mix, you have this, what's still a really distinct mood and character, to this game where yeah it's um it's got this very gothic thing going on but you also have elements of sci-fi it's from the time right before developers felt the need to explain these things you know there's no there's no explanation required <laughs> for quake yeah it's just um it has a deep sense of place the place doesn't strictly make sense but it's almost like well it doesn't matter you're here you've got to deal with it now <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's incredibly enigmatic. And, uh, you know, perhaps also in contrast to how things would be done these days, everything feels like cut from that same cloth. Uh, you know, like you wouldn't necessarily think of a grenade launcher in uh, in a medieval castle, but like the yes. noise of it, uh, you know, like it sounds very like, it sounds almost like a sort of steam operated <laughs> grenade launcher. Yeah. Like... They, they, everything feels very much of, of that universe, uh, and I'm going to end up talking about atmosphere again. So I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to stop myself. But yeah, there's just a, there's a, a cohesion between all the elements, between the sounds. Somehow Trent Reznor's soundtrack is exactly like you shut your eyes and you're, you're somehow in like quite a gothic environment. That it, it all just works yeah. so well. So I'm very pleased that it's not a side-on Tekken game where you get kicked off the side of a hill and roll for ten minutes. Yeah. And it's funny, like, Trent Reznor, now an Oscar-winning um, soundtrack writer alongside Atticus Ross, but mm. there's a huge, huge gap between the soundtracks he's done in the last 10 years or so and the one he did for Quake. It was the only soundtrack he'd done up to that point. He didn't do any for a long time afterwards. And right. I find it kind of amazing that he really sort of understood the brief in a way I think most big name artists wouldn't like it's he his voice is very sort of backgrounded he uses it in a kind of textural way for like unease yeah. there's there are no words on the soundtrack I don't think yeah um and it just um provides this really sort of grimy and unnerving atmosphere yeah absolutely no, I don't think any. It was the perfect artist. I can't think of anybody like. If money was no object, I can't think of anybody better to soundtrack Quake. Yeah, and at the time, you know, Nine Inch Nails, like as a vibe and visually, were inspiring others. They were inspiring people at it. Um, you yeah, know, that whole sort of um, industrial aesthetic, which was about unease, grime, rust disgust rusty walls yeah rusty walls like <laughs> all of that fed into quake and then they got because yeah. in software was the most exciting thing in games at that time they got the man himself to soundtrack it um and it's yeah. it's really the perfect pairing that says a lot about the 90s doesn't it that those collaborations could just happen that really yeah. and, and then it wasn't you know like massively you know correct me if i'm wrong but it wouldn't have been like 
on the on the show floor at E3, wheeling out Trent Reznor to sort of high five audience members and announce this like collab. No, they just, it was, they just did it. It was a sort of like like minds meeting and becoming friends, and it being produced mm. through that way. I imagine it was a very different process when Reznor did the uh, the theme to Black Ops. Two, I want to say, <laughs> <laughs> which is good in its yeah. own way, but I, you know, it doesn't have that feel of like these are people collaborating just because they really admire each other's work. Absolutely. Listen, it's been too long since we've uh, put some of these ideas into list format. Uh, I believe that you've arranged some top fives to, uh, yeah, to make Quake's case. So uh, let's get into some of those. So we've got a best moments list, and uh, okay. I want you oh, to try this... and picture the scene as I describe some of these. Okay, so we're, in, yes. we're in the first. Oh, my, episode. my eyes are closed for no reason. <laughs> yeah, we're in episode one, which is the uh, there's a level known as the the necropolis. I think yeah. it's the second level, maybe. It's the first time you pick up a grenade launcher. You round the corner, and there's an ogre, and he's behind a oh, set I can of see bars. It, Jeremy. You know the yeah. one, right? Yeah, and, and yeah. he also has a grenade launcher. <laughs> and uh, on top of that, there's a sloping floor between you. And that yes. is the exact moment you realize there's all of this crazy physics going on and the pen- potential of ricochets. And it's a game changer because all of these grenades, you try and shoot at the guy, the ogre with a grenade, and inevitably it bounces off one of the bars at an odd angle. And then it hits the floor and comes in, in a, another strange angle and causes you damage. And you're just trying to figure out this at the time, unprecedented new world of um, trajectories. And, <laughs> you know, there's nothing like that yeah. in Doom. Nothing comparable at all. I think that's just it's Absolutely. just a perfect moment to kind of encourage you to like open up your mind and just spend a bit of time experimenting. I know the exact bit. Yeah, yeah. I also remember that I think by default, I could be wrong here, but the mouse was mapped so that uh, pushing forward on the mouse moved you forwards so there was the added peril of like whenever you did launch a projectile of just like walking straight into it as well which is probably what (laughs) i did the first time i played that as as an idiot child yeah um just like pinged it off it went down the hill i also just followed it down the slope into the ogre um but yeah i know i know the exact bit and uh, for my money that first episode yeah that first cluster of levels is is my favorite Mm. probably because it's the one i've played the most but like it's the most quake it goes a bit more sci-fi after that, and uh, like that, those those first, I want to say six levels are are the most like uh, as if they're visiting from Daggerfall. Yeah, uh, so, yeah, very much. so. Yes, so that's that's moment number one. I'm absolutely in agreement. That is a fantastic moment. It's like it's a classic bit of classic bit of id where this excitement for a new tech thing that they've developed uh, takes form in something that like you don't immediately realize that this is like wizardry of code at work here it's just you you just instinctively understand that there's a fun thing to be done yeah and then only years later when you get into games journalism or like you know start thinking about games in a different way you start to think like god what what must that have taken to have developed like projectile tech in 1996 yeah and to have not just the the genius is there to create that stuff and carmack and michael abrash but designers who saw the potential of it and like and put it to its best that's use it, isn't it? 
I, you know, I guess that's the difference between Trespasser and Half-Life 2, you know, we were talking about last episode. Mm. Id have always understood the potential of each tech breakthrough that they've developed. And that's a really great uh, example of it. It's just to put a grenade launcher uh, just before a slope and an encounter that's going to be really satisfying to... Um, like I'm playing, uh, for no reason at all, I'm playing Aliens Colonial Marines at the moment. And <laughs> one of the many things that it does wrong is that like, whenever it introduces something new to you, like a new weapon or system, instinctively, you know, because this was 2013, by now you're used to the way that that happens is that you're given a new thing and then the very next encounter shows you the most fun way that you could possibly use it. Yeah. And Colonial Marines doesn't do that. And it's because of id, and I would argue Valve <laughs> later on, <laughs> that that we have that expectation that it's going to show you the most fun way to do that. But that precedent wasn't set before um, before Quake and maybe Doom did a bit of it actually as well. The first time you get some of those yeah. weapons in Doom, it sort of tees it up very nicely to have fun with it. Um but yes, great moment. Yeah, when you pick up a new weapon in Quake, you're like, I should use this now because there's going to be a great <laughs> showcase yeah. of it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. My uh, my next moment uh, is one of a couple of traps I'll be highlighting in uh, in this game. I think of this one as the mm. kind of the Edgar Allan Poe short story trap. So uh, <laughs> there's a button. There's always a button and you press it and a trap door opens up beneath you. And uh-huh. uh, you find yourself in a corridor, and it's stained with blood, and it's blocked at both ends by bloody spikes. And oh, I then, think uh, I, I played this with you in co-op, didn't I? Yeah, yeah, we did. And then those those walls start to encroach. The spikes getting closer, mm. and you're, I'm going to be crushed to death. And the way you get out is by disabling the machinery. Like there's a couple of different points on the ceiling that you have to hit and then once you do that the walls fold away and you get to live another day um but i think this is an like it's one of those aspects of shooters which is almost entirely absent now is the traps and this sort of indiana jones mm. sense that you're yeah. in a an environment that's built to kill you and you, you get trapped in moments where You've only got a handful of seconds to figure out how to deal with it, and um, you know maybe that's frustrating to modern design sensibilities. I don't know, but those moments always stick in my head from Quake. Yeah, I I, I always love a trap actually. Like if the if it's logical enough how to get out of it, then I'll gladly be taken on that ride. I think something that we we you know just chatted about anecdotally while we were last playing Quake in co-op is how much you feel the level designer their hand. Yeah. And how much you feel that you're just like an absolute plaything of theirs, just being tossed back and forth in this, um, you know, it's, it's basically a ride, isn't it? It's basically a roller coaster, but like an incredibly enjoyable one that you do feel that you've got agency to, you know, maybe take a different corridor or do it at your own pace. But ultimately, yeah, you are just in a in a rat maze. But every every corridor is is the length of it is just perfect. Yeah, like the the mastery of level design is is absolutely peerless. Yeah, and everything has been thought of that Romero style of level design, where you just be kind of playing it hundreds and hundreds of times as you went along, and just kind of testing, like, okay, now I'll play this few seconds, and how does that feel? And that's yeah. I think that's how you get those kind of perfect timings and things that that build tension in exactly the right way and release at exactly the right point. It's special. I would say. Um... Dusk is the only game I've played recently that that, that does that mm. as well. 
Dusk's levels feels like they feel like they've been they were made yeah three seconds at a time. How can we yeah. make this three seconds enjoyable? Um, and also it helps that obviously it shares that aesthetic with uh, with Quakes one and two. Uh, yeah, and, and I guess blood does. as well. It looks a lot like blood. Um, yeah. But yes, that's another fantastic moment. And I think I just straight up died. Maybe when we first were playing that together in yeah. co-op, I was just like, oh, well, I guess I wasn't meant to go down here. <laughs> That's that. I guess this what's, is the What end still of the game. throws me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what a weird ending. Um, what still throws me is that, like, because Mouse Look wasn't the default at that point, as I've mentioned, looking up in games is, like, still something that takes me a minute. Yeah. Uh, so if the solution to anything is to look up, I won't get it straight away, particularly if there's a time limit. I'll just be like frantically looking around at eye level, like, well, there's no button, so it's impossible. Um, there was a there was a bit in Sin uh, that that got me for like maybe six months, quite <laughs> early on, where like you're emerging from a sewer and then like you're you emerge into this construction site and you're in like big, basically like a big uh, dry swimming pool, and the solution is to like look immediately above you and uh, above you and like shoot a pipe and then it the water fills you up and then you can swim out, but Honestly, six months, I would just load it up, look around for 20 minutes, be like, no, I still can't do it, and then like close it down, uninstall it, play a different game. So I'm glad you were there for this one in Quake. Yeah, human beings in general struggle with looking up, don't they? I mean, Dishonored's entire stealth system is predicated on the idea that if you're above someone, they won't notice you. And I still, <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I often think like... It always when when I go to a new town, it always takes me a long time to notice the buildings above shop fronts. Do you know what I mean? Like I'll Ooh, see, yeah, good point. I'll see boots and Games Workshop and all this stuff, and then you know, months later, I'll be like, oh, there's like three floors of ornate old building above this mm. <laughs> that I've never spotted. We used to uh, we used to sneak up onto the rooftops in York. When I, as a younger man, when I when I worked at a bar in in York, York is obviously like a very touristy, picturesque old city with just such you know grandiose architecture. And there was a way, like just down the back of what was Woolworths, you could like access all the rooftops, and it was like incredibly dangerous. Jeremy, it stresses me out even thinking about it. <laughs> but we do that like after a shift when we're all hammered, get up onto the rooftops, oh, and then the God. other side, like. One side of it with all the storefronts was like, you know, one of the main streets. The other side was just the river. Just the inky black stillness of the river at 3am when you've had nine Jaeger bombs. something about the river in York as well, isn't the way it's sort of swollen and like, it really (laughs) feels dangerous. (laughs) It It is dangerous. Well, one day, one day Armstrong just started sliding. Like he just lost his balance and he just slid all the way down the roof. And I was immediately thinking of like, oh my God, he's like... He's in the river and he's dead. Yeah. He just came to a stop with his legs dangling off as if he was just like sitting on the on in the gutter. He just came to a stop and he just turned around and we went <laughs> I was like, "Oh my god, I'm not cut out for this life." Someone give me a staff writer job in games journalism. Get me away from this hedonism. Good Christ. <laughs> you sound like you were living in dishonor at that time, except you were like one of the guards yeah. that Corvo snuck up on and slit the throat <laughs> exactly yeah mm. absolutely hapless devoid of supernatural powers <laughs> um i've completely derailed your quake moment there but right. um yeah, it's a good one let's have another one <laughs> killing Cathon. so this is the boss at the end of the, that first episode 
And uh, yes, I think the, yeah. the first boss fight in software ever did. In that, you know, you have the like the barons of hell in Doom and this kind of stuff, but they're sort of like mm. they're staged fights. But this is the first one where like there's a sequence of steps you have to take to like to bring him down. You've got to like go and stand on these plates which bring up these sort of these two like points between which like there's a bolt of electricity that fires and, and zaps him. Oh yeah. And at, yeah. at the same time you've got to dodge the attacks and there's a big pit of lava in the centre of the room and you know, globules of lava sort of throwing being thrown around. Yeah, it's not just shooting at him, is it? Yeah. And the fight's the fight's the fight's fine. But the best bit is once you've beaten him and the camera cuts away to the corner of the room so you can see the whole scene. There are gibs exploding everywhere. Just more gibs than can possibly have come from Cathan. <laughs> and there's like some cheesy prose on screen about conquering the dimensions. And then Resna's Quake theme kicks in. Imagine it's Resna doing it, not me, and it's really compelling. And that's that's the moment you realise the game has its hooks in you. Mm. Yeah, yeah. You, I mean, you always go back and start the next episode after doing that. Yeah, I've never just left it there and gone, "Oh, well, that's that's that bit done in yeah. three weeks." Of yeah, you're straight back in because you've got to see what the next world looks like. Yeah, yeah cool moment. It, it, it just you feel the potential. You're like, "Oh my god, I've just experienced this. What else am I going to find?" And mm. uh, yeah, it's great. The ultimate shareware sell. I suppose that must that will have been the end of the, the free episode, right? Yeah. So, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah, do you think it was a little bit front-loaded? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. like, the last episode is the most kind of frustrating, and the first two are the strongest, I would say. What's interesting is, like, yeah. Tim Willits is responsible for quite a lot of that first episode, and he's, like, the least experienced level designer at the time. So, right. you know, that's quite, um, it's kind of pretty cool that he got to kind of showcase what he could do. He, you know, he'd been a modder beforehand and I think worked maybe at Raven down the road from Ed or something. Um, yeah. Oh, no, he worked on um, Strife, I think. Who made Strife? Developed by Rogue Entertainment. So that's another one. Oh, that Rogue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every, every okay. studio that worked, you know, on a, a Doom adjacent game with it at that time went on to make. Uh, you know other cool stuff so they made uh, mm. America McGee's Alice eventually yeah, yeah with Ameri- which one of them was it that went on to do that <laughs> it's two American I'm doing, I'm doing a funny don't worry <laughs> <laughs> was that Willits <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no shortage of ego in software at that time has to be said um, <laughs> um, yeah okay so is that is that three that's three, three moments that's three moments okay um I got, so we're we're down to the top two. Top are, they, two. are these in ascending or descending order? Uh, I mean, it's sort of. They're just five great moments. Like like Quake itself, slightly front loaded, probably. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> this is a good one, but it comes from near the beginning okay. of the game. Another mm. trap again in the necropolis, along with the uh, the ogre behind bars. So yeah. you climb into a lift and you press a button, and it's the second lift you come to in that level. The first one, you press the button. The lift rises. Bob's your uncle. This time you press yes. the button, lift doesn't move. Instead, the ceiling descends and keeps descending. 
and you look for a button to shoot and there isn't one and uh, I'm stressed just as that ceiling is scraping the top of your skull it parts in two pieces uh... and then the lift rises and it takes you up to the final fight and the exit it's a fake out it's a fake out oh that is good and it's an ultimate yeah. moment of the designer just kind of laughing at you and playing with you I love it yeah I love that stuff yeah I think I think there should be more of that I mean I think that's like that's why there are boomer shooters is that people do enjoy you know what can be done with some fairly rudimentary like component parts just yeah. some corridors and some sprites like then all the all the emphasis is on like what do you do with them how do you pace it yeah what surprises can you throw at you with that within those constraints like i'm all about constraints with creativity and i don't want to get harp on about that again but um i think yeah i i'd, I'd say you know games like proteus and dusk are, are good evidence that um that we do still have an appetite at least a subset of us has an appetite for just being a level designer's plaything if the level yeah. designer is uh, id software mid nineties tier? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they got to be good. But yeah, having that sort of uh, one-on-one relationship with a level designer is a is a really cool thing. That I do miss absolutely. Okay, and the final the final best moment to make Quake's case as one of the great games. Well, the the great game, better even than Half Life, is this. Fittingly, it's from the final episode, final level. Okay, final boss. Okay. Shub Nagurath. I don't know if I'm pronouncing oh, that correctly. I hate Shub Nagurath. <laughs> <laughs> the mother. Oh, it's, yeah. It's it's a cool like it's a cool thing. It's a like as far as Quake lore goes, just just like to see this thing. But like the boss fight is absolute bullshit, Jeremy. Like, <laughs> it's absolute nonsense. Listen, it is. It is, and I had to look up how to finish it. <laughs> And yeah, it's it's a little like Cthon in that like oh, this is a little contrived. But so the mother of uh, of all these monsters, she's a sort of bulbous, meaty mass thing, with horns coming out of the top. <laughs> I think that, and and uh, I think she'd be the first to say that herself as well, wouldn't she? So <laughs> we're not having a pop. Yeah, <laughs> uh, not to speak ill of anyone's mother, but yeah. Um, <laughs> She kind of sits in the middle of a pit of lava. She's invulnerable. and um, But there's a sort of weird spiky sphere that slowly floats, floats around in her vicinity. Maybe it's the, you know, the last sort of remaining uh, echo of Romero's weird first quake pitch. And um, mm. that sphere is the end point to a portal. And to get into that portal, you have to battle all the way the, around the outside of the chamber, kill these incredibly tough enemies, this shambles for days, and yeah, yeah. step through that portal, and you've got to do it at the right moment. And the right moment is when the sphere passes through Shub herself. And if you do that, it's a telefrag. Teleport right into the center of a boom. Game over. Telefrag is just a very evocative bit of terminology. It's almost turning me round to to liking it, but <laughs> it's a little it's a little evocation of the multiplayer quake, isn't it? Where that that was a thing that mm. happened. If you were st- stood yeah. in the wrong point at the you know the end point of a portal, didn't matter how much armor you're wearing, you're exploding, mate. I'm afraid. So it's a sort <laughs> of a little tribute to that. Yeah, still one of the best things to do in Quake Champion. If uh, Quake Champions, if you're playing as Ranger, 
uh, you get that that telefrag ability. Hmm. Um, well, I mean, you can just you could just use it to teleport if need be. But yeah, you can uh, you can frag people with some expert timing, and it's the best the best thing you can possibly do in Quake Champions. I feel like people maybe forget about Quake Champions, but yeah. it's like it's so good. I think because the skill the skill level is like is so high, it's really impenetrable. But uh, yeah, it's, good it's... game, and basically, yeah, the the telefrag lives on in it. So yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I played a little Quake Champions. I've, I've seen champions play Quake Champions at Quake Con. It's an incredible thing. <laughs> that but, feels uh, like you're going into SEO mode. <laughs> trying to get us to rank. <laughs> you can take the writer out of PC games then. Who <laughs> <laughs> are the Quake Champions? The Quake Champions are the Champions of Quake? We simply don't know yet. <laughs> the event has not taken place. <laughs> Well, those are all very compelling moments, Jeremy, to be honest, um, and I'm sure they resonate with, um, I was going to say, our readership. That's that's how... I think that's how, <laughs> that's how, old how school my brain's back gone. page listeners think of themselves as a readership. Yeah. <laughs> Readers of the digital archive. Um, yeah, absolutely. I, I'm in agreement with all of those. I don't think any other moments come to mind that, um, that I would say one-up that. I like going underwater in Quake. I can't explain mm. why. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess it's the it's the verticality thing, and like they they find ways to make it extremely stressful. They're like, right, you've got to go underwater. You understand that much. You go underwater. You realise there's there's almost like a whole level under there that you can see. You're like, what is this? There's a, quite a sense of wonder because it's loads deeper than you realise. And then there's a room within like the centre of this huge pool. And then you've got to like press the button or whatever. Yeah, uh, and re emerging in a new room is it's got a sort of a apocalypse now feel to it. Like you feel like yeah. sort of, uh, some kind of sicko commando. It's pretty cool. <laughs> and and also it makes you, you put it plays a bit of a trick on you because you think that there was an extra bit of level that you've bypassed when in fact like that you're on the critical path yeah. because you've <laughs> done it through water. You're like, oh, I've hacked the level and I've like cut out a quarter of it and I wonder what I missed. Yeah, for me, that's um, a prompt to I, go, uh, I'll go back and I'll check. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I might have like missed like a new weapon or something. I'm not taking that risk. Yeah. Um, that would be the only thing I'd add, but like, yeah, I, I can see why you didn't add water as one of the five best moments in like the arguably the best shoot of the 90s because... <laughs> That would seem silly. Um, so those are the best moments. So that was good fun. Uh, thank you for, for putting that together for us, Jeremy. But there's more to come because what you've also done is something involving sounds in Quake. Uh, is that right? Yeah. So I've uh, picked out what I think are the five best sounds in Quake. And I'd, I'd like to quiz you on them. And, I would uh, like to be quizzed on them. I've developed a point system. so I think this will be a great time for us both. And I appreciate that you've done it. <laughs> good. Well, the the idea is that I will first impersonate each of the sounds. Yes, and if of you course. manage to, uh, yes, of course. And if you manage <laughs> to get it from that um, performance, then you get two points. Right. Okay. Um, if not, we fall back to the actual sound. Um, yeah. You know this uh, of the game, and that you'll get one point if you get that correct. And uh, if you don't get it at all, of course, that's zero points. 
So there's a maximum of 10 points available. If I get all the cues from the non-diegetic that's versions, right. that's maths, then it's 10 it? points. Yeah. Then And then it would be five points if I get all of the diegetic in-game samples of audio. And then if I don't understand them at all, I get zero points for each one. So maximum of 10 points on the table. These are the yep. Quake sound effects. And sound is such a central part of nostalgia in gaming i think it works a bit because we don't have smell in games and smell is like weirdly evocative there's actually something about the way that your neural pathways are formed with smells is that you sort of like you access all these dormant like there's a reason that smell is so evocative when it comes to memory is what i'm trying to get at and i've completely forgotten why that is in your brain chemistry however because we don't have that (laughs) in games games have no smell which is probably a good thing in both half-life and quake sound I think occupies a similar um, role for us when we're being all nostalgic about it because we tend to see these games quite often in like in screenshot form or like sort of a little bit of capture in a YouTube video about how great the 90s was. Uh, but it's only when we're like completely immersed back in that audio environment that we get the full nostalgia hit and we forget about, like for me, the Sierra Ident in, in, in Half-Life. Uh, mm. the, uh Yeah. Uh, is is just so evocative. So I think it's a great idea that we're doing these sounds, uh, and they are among the best sounds in nineties gaming. Full stop. So, without further ado, that's, that's me just going off on a little one there. Um, let's hear the first sound cue from Quake. Okay, so Quake sound number one. Grrr. <laughs> Do you like to hear that, that, again? Be, that could be anything in any game I've ever played. <laughs> so much build up as well. <laughs> the most generic noise I've ever heard. <laughs> Grr. Very oh, distinctive. Man. Is it? Okay. You can have it again. Yeah. Grr. <laughs> right. Uh, is it? Is it the ogre? It isn't actually. Oh. I, I actually thought it was the ogre in my memory, but it wasn't. I had to oh. search around um, to find out who was responsible for it. Yeah, so obviously it's an enemy. It's one of their barks Correct. or chirps. Um, Correct. Uh, the only sort of things that. Because. Oh, or is it just like the. Um, is it the, like the grunt enemies in the second episode that are more just like the. They look like you. They're like zombie rangers. Mm, good guess, but no. Yeah, there's a lot of them oh. in the, the sci-fi uh, levels, aren't there? But no, yeah. it's not them. Okay, I, I'm going to have to go to the real sound effects and probably still won't get it. Okay. Yeah. So this is a maximum of one point available now. Exactly. <laughs> oh, it was actually a really good impression you did. Oh, thanks. Oh, I, I was <laughs> laughing at it, but like, do you know what? That's That's... Bang on! It's I just think it's all the so pointers uh, that Ray Fines gave me last episode has really improved <laughs> my craft. Yeah, he's really got under your skin, hasn't he? And he's—I've yeah. I've not heard a peep from him since. So, I think that tells you all you need to know about the progress you've been making, mate. I'm going <laughs> to listen to it one more time. Yep. <clears throat> oh, I just—I just don't know because it's—it could be man or beast. And well, I'll tell you, it's. Somewhere in the middle, it's the Death Knight. <laughs> really? Do you yeah, know that yeah. was the first thing that I disc? I was like, it's definitely not the Knights. 
Mm. No, that's him. Oh, well, I'm going to do terribly through all of these then. (laughs) (laughs) If I didn't get that one. That was the only thing that was like off the table in my mind. Uh, So, great. Okay. Good. Well, it was enjoyable and it was a very good impression. And I'm sorry that I laughed for about an hour and 45 minutes at your uh, at your guru. It was just like I was expecting something so specific that could only be in Quake. And I just got the noise of every enemy I've ever shot for the last 30 years. <laughs> okay, well, I think this is more uh, unusual. I'm going to okay. uh, play Quake Sound 2 now and uh, I'm going to perform that for you live. Okay, Quake Sound number two. <laughs> Oh, okay. Can I can I hear it one more time, please? Yeah, I'd say this one's harder for the um, the human voice. Yeah, um, to replicate. Oh, I do recognise it. Mm. I do recognise it. I'm thinking, perhaps in terms of like teleporting, or no, hey. no. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna let you. You've gone straight to the right answer there. I'm not going to okay. give you a chance to lose that point. You got it. That's the teleporter. <laughs> oh, amazing! Well, that's testament to your uh, um, your human foley art there. Um, so, for for everyone playing along at home, let's hear the real version of that from uh, the the game sound effect itself now. Yeah, that's pretty difficult to do with just a human voice. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm amazed you got it actually. <laughs> Play. Yeah, and yeah, I didn't get the um, the Death Knight. Interesting. Yeah, um, I think you might well get this next one as well. So I'm two from a possible four points so far. Yeah, that's right. Okay. All right, so quick sound number three. Okay. Boom! <laughs> right. It's taken me a minute to recognise that, um, but that is the unmistakable noise of a grenade from a grenade launcher hitting like uh, a stone surface. That's exactly right. And it's a noise yes. you've already mentioned in this episode. <laughs> it's my favourite noise in Quake. It's what I think <laughs> of. When I think of Quake, that's the noise that comes up. Ah, oh, that's that was a, a great impression of it as well. Um, oh, quite startling, but, uh, yeah. but yeah, it was fantastic. As it should be. You'd, it's you know like a, a smoke alarm. You want the sound of a grenade bouncing to startle you. So wake you up. And, uh... Very true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Don't want to be dozing when those are going off. Uh, right. Let's hear the real version of that then. Ah, oh. it's beautiful, isn't it? So good. It's like I've, I feel like I've listened to a full Enya album. <laughs> and you hear <laughs> it multiple times place. in uh, quick succession, don't you? In game, you do. Yeah, they bubble all yeah. around the place. Okay, so I'm six for uh, six for eight. Uh, four for six. No, four for six. We're unnecessarily complicating this. You have four points so far. And yes, there are two more questions. I'm 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 buoyed <laughs> by that recent success, and I feel like yeah, I can do well two now. Very very quick successes. Okay. Yes. Okay. This quick one. sound number four. <clears throat> Oh, oh, oh! I think it's the uh, the Yeti throwing his lightning fork at you. Oh, it's not. I al- it's not. I almost used that sound because that's got that's got a beautiful bounce to it. It kind of goes boom, like there's a little uh, uh, sort of like pitching boom noise. But I didn't end up using that. 
Yeah. Uh, would you like to hear my impersonation again? Yes, please. Okay. <clears throat> Swing! Oh. You want to think about who might be swinging? <laughs> well, yeah, I guess I'm thinking about the knights again. Mm. But oh. but the, the knights have already been and done their. <laughs> no, well, yeah, I'll, I'll I'll give you that because there are two different knights in this game. There's the the death knights, the upgraded form of the knight, and this is the regular knight. Oh. And uh, this is like his alert sound when he sees you. Presumably, he's, he's oh, pulling his sword fine. out of his sheath. Okay, all right. Well, so am I getting the points for that? I reckon yeah, I should maybe yeah. get one because you. Oh, I you think helped you got two. You, you okay. got there. You got there. So okay. let's, let's hear that then. Okay. <coughs> oh, v- again, very good. So it's got two distinct elements, hasn't it? Yeah, and you did it all in one sort. Of, it's like playing the didgeridoo. The way that you're creating these, you're you're making noises <laughs> with your voice. I didn't know were humanly possible. Okay, so now I am six for eight. That's good. Um, That's yes. a good total. So for I can get a maximum of eight out of ten points here if I get this based on the Jeremy impression. So I think this one's a little harder for me to impersonate and for you to get, but it's a noise I really like. So okay, well we're warmed up, so both of us. So this yeah. we, we can do it. I believe in us. Here goes the fifth okay. best quake sound. No, 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 no. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah. I definitely recognise it, and I think it's the floaty, ghosty enemies. Yes. Is it the? F- is it? Yes. 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 Is it the like the basically like the attack sound of the floaty, ghosty enemies? Well, I'm going to give you one point for that because oh. I also thought it was their attack sound. When I looked into it; it's actually their pain sound. So it's when you're hitting them, but in the, right. in the sort of the chaos of the fight, you wouldn't necessarily know what's causing it. Yeah. Um, well, there's also all the. Dong! From the grenades going everywhere. Yeah. Just, just chaos. I think it plays every time you hit them, so it's sort of like you get a sort of staccato. Oh, no, 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 no. Oh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was beautifully done. Well, let's hear uh, the real version of that as well. No. 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 <laughs> it sounds really disappointed in you. <laughs> I've told oh, you not to shoot me. I believe it. Oh, quake guy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, wonderful. So, if I got one point for that uh, that last one, so I'm uh, seven seven out of ten. Seven out of ten. That's good. The... Back page is very fond of seven out of tens. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I may I may yet be appreciated beyond my time <laughs> with that score. Um, well, That's fantastic, very good. Jeremy. I th- I Thank you, you very, very much. Well. Yes. That, well, you you guided me along very uh, expertly there. Um, mm. But yeah, I think I think uh, you you've got a career in like sort of live sound effecting. Oh, Maybe thank you. Yeah, you know if people yeah. are, like for game jams and stuff where people don't have time to like, go and create um, you know audio libraries, you can just be there and just sort of like soundtrack it on the fly as people play. Yeah, just add a little bit. That'd be cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So shall we follow a quiz with a quiz? That's good uh, podcast structuring, isn't it? Please do. Do you know what? It feels like the last day of term at school, doesn't it? Where like, it all just goes out the window. Like, ah, oh, let's just watch Tom and Jerry cartoons yeah. on a VHS and then we'll play some snakes and ladders. Yeah, um, sure. Let's do a quiz then, yes. Okay, so this this game is called uh, John Romero's About to Make You. 
Uh, and of course, you, I mean, you can explain to our listeners who, who aren't familiar why, why it would be called this. Well, in, uh, in print media through, uh, through 1998, um, Daikatana ran, ran a full page ad. Uh, the hero copy just said, John Romero is about to, about to make you his bitch. Um, and yeah. it became infamous because, of course, I think it probably would have been a bad ad, even if Daikatana was the next Quake or Half-Life. But it was a particularly bad ad because then Daikatana was like this five out of ten shambles. Actually, yeah. I, I I played it last year for, for the first time um, and, and really enjoyed it, but only through the lens of sort of silly nostalgia. Um, yeah. So that's... <laughs> That's the that's where the phrase comes from. John Romero's about to make his bitch. I think it's probably his biggest regret in life, um, and I'm yeah, sure it wasn't he, his idea. Like, uh, no. <laughs> I mean, it's 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 shocking, but it's not that shocking in the context of '90s gaming ads. You know, in the era of attitude. And, oh, absolutely. Uh, complete non sequiturs in terms of advertising. <laughs> the the attitude era with the game. Yeah, we're back into wrestling. I think this this has got legs. If there's one thing this podcast needs, it's to talk about wrestling more. Um, mm, it's really an, yeah. an unserved niche there. To be. <laughs> Not enough gaming podcasts branch out into wrestling. Um, yeah. So so we got a, yes. The 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 game is John Romero is about to make you do something, and uh, <laughs> you you know it may be a good thing or a bad thing, and I'm going to give you the connecting word. After you know, John Romero is about to make you something, right. and then based on that connecting word, you have to decide whether you're going to go ahead with it, opt in or not. Okay, all right. I'll probably understand more after the first one. I feel like I'm <laughs> going to be placed in some compromising positions here. Sure. Yeah. So, all right. Are you ready? I'm. Well, I'm not sure. <laughs> Let's find out. John Romero is about to make you ah. Right. Okay. And then I just have to decide whether I'm up for that. Based yeah, based on, on that connecting be. word, you have to think, oh, is that, you have to imagine what that could be. Oh. Whether, you, whether well, you're up for it or not. Well, the first thing I was thinking of is like uh, a pie or like a coffee, or it's just going to do me a, like a culinary favor. It's going to make mm. me dinner. So you're up because for that then? I, I don't see why not. I mean, if we've all seen what the guy can do with, with, a, with level design. What can he do in the kitchen? <laughs> you know, that would be fascinating. If he takes you on a similar journey of like, you know, the pitfalls and the the stakes and the non secretors and the, the diversions and the doubling back. If he can do that with taste, then I'm more than willing to, to try one of John Romero's culinary creations. Yeah, because cooking's very iterative, isn't it? You know, his first well, exactly, spag yeah. bowl might be a disaster, but his 30th. Oof. Yeah. There'd be there'd be John Carmack just really sort of deliberating over where he's sourcing the ingredients, and each time, you know, the bolognese is made, then it's like a you know the beef has come from somewhere else. It's been stored slightly differently. All the technical yeah. aspects in this ham-fisted metaphor have been taken care of. And Romero's just freestyling in the kitchen. He's just like throwing in these new ingredients. Yeah, he's with like, his ham-fist. It's like a, a tartar bolognese this time. Sure. Um, I'm quite hungry for that. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely up for that one. I'm up for John Romero's about to make me uh, something culinary. Okay, well, I can tell you that John Romero is about to make you a cup of tea before you go to work. Ah, yes. Yes, that's I'm lovely, completely up for that. And that's really nice of him. 
So I appreciate that, John. Thank you. He's a busy man as well. Yeah, I like it. His own family to think about. For him to take time out to do that for you, I think that's lovely. The the only downside of that is the, like the social awkwardness involved because he's obviously a lot higher status than I am. So for him to be making me a tea is a bit like a you'd bit probably, weird. I'd feel you'd thank him a bit too much. Yeah, and he'd be like, "Yeah, yeah. no problem." And I'd still yeah. just be like, "Oh, but honestly, no." Like, and it tastes great. Like you put just the right amount of milk, and you bring doom like, into bring it. Be onto something else. Yeah. yeah, you'd be like, "Oh, by the way, just like you were, it's really been really important to me, and it'll just be like." a bit too heavy (laughs) before breakfast yeah yeah yeah. and he's just like yeah 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 like no no worries um Mm. and i'd leave feeling like i've embarrassed myself there but like given the opportunity for that to happen or not i think i'm right to say yes yeah i think you were as well okay next one john romero is about to make you go right okay i'm i'm more hesitant about this one because Something's something's happening to me here. I'm not just receiving something. <laughs> go. And I'm not great with travel, Jeremy. I'm quite nervous when it comes to travel. <laughs> or it could be like go ape, you know, or like go go bananas. It could just be to deliver such a great game that I go wild for it. But I don't think it's that. Yeah. I think I'm going to have to go somewhere. And if it involves plane travel, I'll be nervous on the flight. But okay. like, I think I think life's about saying yes to opportunities. I'm still going to say yes. All right. Okay. Well, John Romero is about to make you go to the shops for a Cornetto. Oh, fine. (laughs) (laughs) So it's quid pro quo, really, in a really low stakes way. He's made me a cup of tea, but he expects a Cornetto out of me. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 sort of, you know, it could be an inconvenience. You might have had other plans, but it's not going to hurt, is it? It wouldn't take long. And like, what a story. Again, you know, like, I can't stress this enough. Like, John Romero is such... So much higher status than me that whatever plans I did have for the day would be subsumed by going to the shop to get him a Cornetto because then I'd be telling everyone later on, do you know, do you know what I just did today? Just went, went down and got a Cornetto. Yeah, almost like the mundanity of it enhances the anecdote, doesn't it? In a very British yeah. sort of way, like what's you know mundane thing involving a celebrity. We love that stuff. We do. It hammers home that they're human just like us. Yeah. Okay, next one. John Romero is about to make you inhale. <laughs> I'm not up for that. No? <laughs> and it's okay. nothing on John. I think if any <laughs> sentence began with that, no matter who the name, Mary Berry is about to make you inhale. I, it wouldn't matter. Trevor <laughs> Nelson's about to make you inhale. I wouldn't, I wouldn't. Yeah. Like, how many good things are there to inhale? Oxygen. That's literally yeah. it. And he's not going to make me inhale oxygen, is he? Because I'm doing that <laughs> passively, as a matter of course. So <laughs> You do. Yeah, yeah. So, as, as much as I've said that life's about saying yes, I can't, I can't condone inhaling something. So I'm going to say no, but let's hear what it was going to be. Okay. What have I missed I think, out on? I think you've been wise. John Romero is about to make you inhale an entire packet of cigarettes so that you never think of smoking again. <laughs> oh, I'm really glad I said I said no to that. Yeah, that'd be unpleasant, wouldn't it? Awful. And the fact again, the fact that it's John doing it, I'd feel like I'd let him down by smoking in the first place. Yeah, it creates a dynamic, doesn't it? He's doing a sort of like fifties dad thing. Yeah. I've let like, him down. Tough love. 
You know, you've yeah. been a little wayward as a teen. Maybe caught you smoking <laughs> one cigarette, and he's like, "Right, here, this is how we're going to deal with this," and then it's oh. going to be over. Yeah, I'd feel really, really self-conscious. I'd probably throw up. It'd just be like a real low point, and it wouldn't be something I tell people about. Not like the Cornetto story. Yeah, you know, I'd, I'd tell nobody about that time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I know I have to say I don't think he would do that he seems like a very modern man to me <laughs> you know. yeah I don't know what the sort of libel implications are for all of this but like <laughs> just, just to cover it all up, John Romero has no part to play in this podcast we have not been in touch with John um, he, we have no reason to believe that he would make me you or anyone listening do any of these things Indeed. we have the utmost respect for, for John Romero and uh, all the games that he's made this is purely hypothetical. Purely. Let's move on to the next one. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Go on. John Romero is about to make you wish. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, that's never that's never good, is it? No one's ever been like, yeah. Um, we don't know, do we? It sounds yet. like something so bad is going to happen that I'm going to wish for something <laughs> less bad that usually would be bad, but I'm going to wish for that scenario because it's gone that bad in reality. Like yeah. I wish that I was just smoking a whole pack of cigarettes <laughs> because he's done yeah. because he's done something worse. Yeah. So you know, a forced wish is never like I'm even thinking. What if it's the most benign thing, just like a lovely birthday wish? Or wish yeah. upon a star, but to force you into it, there's a sinister element to that. Yeah. So I, I'm gonna have to say no once again. I think on that one. Yeah. Okay. I did think of wish upon a star, but yeah, it was it was a weird <laughs> sort of forceful wishing upon a star. I just didn't really want to go there. Yeah. Okay. So the answer is John Romero is about to make you wish you'd only met earlier, so you could have been in each other's oh, lives from the start. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> It's so unexpectedly sweet. <laughs> That's a shame, isn't it? <laughs> That's the ideal version of the of the magazine ad as well. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. instead of, I think it was just like the Daikatana box art that was on the ad, but instead of that, it's just like a really earnest picture of him smiling, and then that that ad copy. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Alas. Well, that was that was. Oh something. no, sorry. There's there's what there's one more. There's one oh more. god. Okay. Right. Okay. Okay. There were only five. They just feel quite long, don't they? Now. John Romero's about to make you his. Oh, this is the boss level. Yeah, it takes the classic form. Yeah, um, it could it could go so many directions. Like it could be that he's about to make me like his signature chili. Mm. You know? Or he could you know, he could be making me something of his that's really special to him and uh, that he's really proud of. Yeah. Or it could be as I'm thinking of the his in terms of like a status thing. You know so, you know, bitch, for example. You know? Yeah. Just just to pluck a, you know <laughs> <laughs> just out of thin air. <laughs> What, you know, a slave, uh, underling, oh, yeah. employee. I wouldn't say no to that. I'm not sure what I could do for You're him. All right, go and work at Romero Games in Galway. They're a yeah. growing company. He's working on yeah. a shooter currently. Why not? Do they need a podcast doing? 
could, could <laughs> be. Yeah. Um, yeah, John Romero's about to make you his senior press officer. Um, <laughs> I I don't, I don't think I'd be good at that. Uh, but, oh, I feel like I should say yes to this one because I've been quite, you know, avoidant. I've been closing a lot of doors and I missed out on that last one where we were becoming friends from an early age. I'm going to yeah. say yes. Okay. That's good. That's up, right. Let's hear it. John Romero's about to make you his lawfully wedded partner. Oh, wow. Well, one really That's followed nice, on from the last it? one, didn't it? Yeah. So it's nice yeah. that even though I, I sort of declined on, on that, we've still ended up in, in lawful matrimony. Um, yeah. So that's that's great. He is, um, of course, uh, happily married. This is purely a hypothetical. Good. Well, yeah, th- thanks for thanks for taking me on that journey. And I think we've um, we've really like answered all the questions that that original magazine ad raised uh, yeah. back in the day. So we can finally put that to bed, I think, now. Good. I hope so. Well, you've got your review war to do. And before we get into Half-Life, should we just sort of talk about why Quake's good? Because we've done, <laughs> done a lot of like sounds. Talking and... around Quake. Yeah. yeah. Let's spend let's spend a, a few minutes at least, like just talking about how absolutely amazing it is to play because we, um, yeah, we've played it through in co-op recently, haven't we? And like, it's yeah. still just uh, still just slaps. Like the the levels are just even after all this time, they stand apart from anything else. Like from in, in corridor shooters in the nineties, it absolutely refined that form. Yeah, uh, just before it went off in a different direction. It has that quality in common with Doom that it doesn't seem to age in the way it plays. Mm. It, yeah, uh, it, yeah. Uh, and partly that's because shooters went in a different direction. They became more cinematic, more scripted, more controlled, and more story-driven. Whereas Quake, like Doom, is is just kind of you got a you got a vague premise and off you go. And within that kind of freedom, you you don't really need to know where you are. You're just in a an absorbing gothic maze and there's just you and the enemy in front of you. It's a very, very simple form of appeal that you don't get so often in games now. What I was thinking about earlier as well is that um, I think there's maybe something wrong with the fact that often our first exposure to a game is us playing it. Or, or like we're you know we're experiencing it in playable form, or we're seeing a trailer straight away. Whereas there was something about the mystique that a game like Quake was able to build up, even mm. before anything but the name was revealed. It was the new game from the Doom developers, and then you would just see this very moody, rusty, industrial bit of artwork, uh, and something about Trent Reznor's involvement also added to that image and the mystique of it. And so by the time you played it, it felt like you were in the presence of something much bigger than you and quite scary. And it was a bit like, I guess in the same way that, uh, you know, when you first discover music these days, you it's just because a song pops up on your shuffle and you just hear it and that's the music. You don't know anything about the band. They haven't had any chance to like develop an image for you in the way mm. that uh, music would have done. You know, that's that's what the the formalized music industry was was all about like 20 years ago was was sort of uh carefully cultivating images and and sort of aspirational stuff around around musicians uh i think that that's sort of broadly true of games as well and quake was like a proper rock star it had like a rock star um persona 
and it was formidable and slightly scary to to uh, to be in its company. A bit like listening to a Slipknot album when you were yeah. you know a teenager as well. Weapons, just fantastic. I'm not a massive fan of the rocket launcher in Quake though. Um, it's sort of like the big legendary weapon from that game, but I, for, for whatever reason, like, I just don't really enjoy it. it. It shares ammo with the grenade launcher, right? Does it? I always, I always prefer to use, or maybe it doesn't, but I prefer to use the grenade launcher in almost all situations. And even yeah, though it's very bouncy, uh, I feel like I end up damaging myself less than when I use the rocket launcher. It's like a very high risk mm. weapon in tight corridors. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's only a, a few like quite specific scenarios where a rocket launcher is useful. I guess maybe like it forged its legend in multiplayer, which yeah. uh, we haven't really touched on. But like, you know, by the time when I was first playing Quake, I'm not sure I had the internet, let alone like the willingness and ability to go online and play death matches. And it was like, yeah. you know, it, it's like the seismic moment in online deathmatch, but it just passed me by. To me, Quake is like this single player game with incredibly finely wrought levels, but Maybe the yeah, um, the rocket launchers' prominence uh, came from came from multiplayer maps, which were a bit more out in the open, and and yeah, you would probably dominate if you uh, managed to get hold of the rocket launcher, and you could sort of rocket jump, from what I remember. It does push you back slightly, doesn't it? Even in Quake One. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah. So, so people were probably beginning with rocket, you know, to experiment with rocket jumps and things like that. Yeah, I think in single player that one of the more striking weapons is the nail gun right mm. just the sound it makes and the the nine inch nails box the logo on the box in the game yeah. when you pick it up and the uh the sheer power of it yeah really thematically cohesive you know it's like the ultimate gothic industrial weapon just this massive nail gun with actual nine inch nails <laughs> branded <laughs> nine inch nails coming out of it yeah, super good. And like the you know, the individual projectile models, that was probably quite impressive in ninety six. Um Yeah. And they use that a lot in the in the design of the levels themselves, don't they? With uh, spikes firing out of walls and Yeah. All of that's you know, a real sense that there's um the level itself has been built to hurt you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's like there's a whole there's like some sentient being above all of this that you're experiencing that you know i mean i guess that's the final boss or in a way it's the game developer but the real enemy is something like completely unseen that has crafted all of this for you mm. um well i think you've created uh, a perfect segue into my review or there have i indeed well let's yeah. do that then so yeah it's it's a game with two halves this one so we'll we'll draw the quake half of the episode to a close with with jeremy's review or i think you've made a, a wonderful case for quake here and and what better way to sort of uh to close that argument with some sort of musical or audio landscape um involving the copy that you would have written as your quake review if you were uh, a working games journalist in 1996 yeah as as always slightly broken the concept this one's written in such a way that it definitely couldn't have been written in '96. But uh... interesting. Well, mine, mine, like, really runs contrary to that uh, for Half Life. So you'll have to you'll have to see the, what I've done with it. Um, but intriguing. okay, let's let's listen then to Jeremy's review war of Quake. How do you think of a level designer? Perhaps as one role among hundreds on a big budget video game. 
Chief designer Randy Smith told me that being a level designer is a great privilege. That after all the art assets and props and mechanics have been created, the level designer is the one left holding the brush, painting the only thing the player will see. Back in the 90s, the level designer was God. At id Software, a single person would map out an entire level. They decided where the enemies went, how high the ceilings were, and where the traps triggered. They were the dungeon master. As a player in Quake, you can still feel their malevolent presence. The fact that you're facing off against an all-seeing antagonist. You can even look at their names. Each of Quake's four episodes is majority owned by an individual designer. As if four solo albums have been packaged together for release. Tim Willits filled episode one with castles, moats and brick textures embracing gothic architecture. Sandy Peterson, the designer of the tabletop game Call of Cthulhu, leaned into Lovecraft. Over time, you come to know their personalities and adapt accordingly. A John Romero level is all about contrast, the air required before the shambler breaks loose. Whereas in Peterson's company, you can expect to manage your ammo count carefully and fight something without a face. It's this I miss about Quake and the era of shooters it represents. Knowing my enemy. Keeping them so close I can feel their breath on the back of my neck. Moody. <laughs> I like. I love the the album of solo albums. Uh, the idea yeah. rather of solo. Yeah, that's that's good, Jeremy. What's where's, where's the uh, the audio underneath from that that bed of throbbing? So that is that is from the Quake soundtrack. So that's oh, of uh, course it is. That's classic res- bit of resonance, sort of uh, breathing down our necks there. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wonderful. Well, uh, once again, it's like actual games criticism happening there. That's, that's really sort of made me think and appreciate uh, Quake and it just makes me really want to play it again maybe that's what I'll do after <laughs> we've recorded this I'll just go back and play Quake um, the Night Dive remaster is absolutely fantastic isn't it like that's something that we should definitely mention oh yeah like the first time I played Quake it was a little difficult like figuring out what, what kind of like fan made engine I should use to make it kind of run and look best on a modern mm. piece now you just you just buy the Quake remaster on Steam or what have you. It's on various platforms now, and it just it looks great and it looks faithful to the original, and it runs beautifully, and it's got co-op, and it's also got extra episodes from um, uh, among others Machine Games. You know the uh, Wolfenstein yeah. developers. So yeah, uh, and those are really good. I played through quite a lot of that stuff. It's tons of like really specific options as well. Like you can really, it feels sort of like a modding platform or like just the most expertly modded version 
of the game where yeah. everything is just running. You don't have to worry about it falling over if like you've forgotten to put a particular file somewhere. Yeah, just a really good remaster. Like it, it feels like it was just always intended to be played in co-op, which is like absolutely miraculous as an achievement. So, um, <laughs> so yeah. that's Quake. Um, let's take a take a break. Uh, stretch our legs, cleanse our palates, and then we'll reconvene for the second half of this episode uh, in which I'll be making the case for the 1998 first-person shooter from Valve Software, Half-Life. This time we're going to be talking about Half-Life. Uh, this is, without doubt, my personal favourite game of all time. I can't see anything catching it now. Like, I don't know what would need to happen in technology for any game to, <laughs> to blow me away as like a grown-up man more than Half-Life, that really like the first PC game that I ever played, uh, blew me away in 98 as a, as a 13-year-old kid. Um, so... Let's get straight into it. I've I've also come up with some best moments, Jeremy, um, mm. that I'd like to regale you with and get your thoughts on. Please do. I've arranged them sort of in order. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna do it this way. I'm gonna do it from five to one. In, okay. Uh, in ascending this order. This really is like a magazine feature. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so number five for me is reaching the Lambda Labs. Um, mm. and I will tell you for why Half-Life is a game that's for me one of the most striking things about it is that it's a story told in real time there's not a single cutaway no time passes that you're not seeing through the eyes of of uh, Gordon Freeman and I that I've always struggled to articulate why I like Half-Life Story uh, so much. Maybe I've told this anecdote before on, on a previous podcast, but I remember being at like a, uh, a press event and having a dinner later on uh, in the evening after we'd been like interviewing devs at the studio somewhere. And I was with <clears throat> uh, David Jenkins from Metro and Nick Cohen, who was at the Telegraph at the time. And one of them asked me what my favourite... We got onto Half-Life. And what the, you know, what my favorite game was, and I said Half Life, and they said, "Well, what do you like about it?" And I said, "I think it's the story." And they both looked at me really quizzically, and I just buckled under the pressure, and I couldn't articulate why, because really the story is pretty meat and potatoes. What happens is an interdimensional rift opens up in a research facility in New Mexico. Aliens pour through it. There's a battle between. Uh, an improbably tough research scientist called Gordon Freeman and all the forces from uh, from an alien dimension uh, and then some soldiers as well who come along to <clears throat> to silence the whole, to clear up the whole uh, 
business and make sure that the wider world doesn't hear about it. And that's not really like Dickens, is it? But it, I think what I meant was it's the <laughs> way the story's told. Yeah. Uh, in completely continuous first-person narrative. And mind you, without Freeman obviously saying a word the entire time. That is absolutely thrilling to me. So by the time you reach the Lambda Labs, it feels sort of amazing that this place existed that you've heard about so much. It's been built up. The scientists have directed you to it. The Barneys have referenced it a bunch of times. And you've you just get such a sense of having been on this journey and really covered a load of ground. And the moment when you see the Lambda logo on the big doors before you enter the Lambda Labs, and then when you go in there, like there's a bunch of experimental weaponry, and you're being sort of teed up to go off into uh, into Zen. Um, but yeah, just sort of looking at that big door, you realise everything that's happened to you and what an incredible journey it's been, yeah. and how many distinct areas and environments and set pieces and scenarios you can remember between beginning your perfectly normal day at Black Mesa and arriving here at the Lambda Labs. Uh, It always just really hammers home to me like what an incredible journey it takes you on. And so that's why that's that's number five for me. I don't know what your thoughts are, Jeremy, on the Lambda Labs in particular. Yeah, well, I mentioned to you the other day, didn't I? I was just kind of reaching the Lambda Labs section in my current playthrough and there was a great bit of dialogue I hadn't remembered where one of the scientists says to to Gordon you know you don't have you know you're not supposed to know about this lab but then again I can see that already you know more than any one man is supposed to and there's tons of great lines like that in Half-Life and yet it's mostly not about dialogue you know I, I interviewed Mark Laidlaw quite recently the um writer of Half-Life I mean, he'd be the first person to say he shouldn't be credited with all of the storytelling in Half-Life. It's a collaborative effort. But I think Mm. one of his great strengths is that unlike so many writers entering the games industry before him, he was a novelist, but he recognised that level design was storytelling. And, Mm. uh, you know, worked with all the level designers on all these sequences. You know, you get those moments in Half-Life where you're crawling through a vent and then you hear soldiers mumbling in the room below you and it becomes apparent they've heard you and suddenly there's shafts of light appearing in that vent as they shoot up at you and then the vent collapses down to the ground and suddenly you're in a firefight in a in a garage and you're in a completely different space than you were 10 seconds earlier and it was all continuous and you never lost control of the character and you're in the middle of this incredible action story and that's those are the exact things that Half-Life introduced that just weren't a part of games or certainly first person shooters before it came along and it is it is storytelling even though it is about a guy who doesn't speak um moving between different action sequences and the premise is a fairly sort of classic you know american paranoia of federal government intervention type thing where there is secret experiments and they go wrong and then there's a violent cover-up by the state and you have this sort of g-man who's a sort of weird fbi type figure who doesn't seem to be from this planet and you know none of that is spectacularly new 
but it's it is the way it's weaved together isn't it so david jenkins nick cohen that's what i meant <laughs> <laughs> all that time ago that's what i meant um and number four i've referenced this uh on a previous podcast as well it's the barneys in the elevator um right at the beginning of the game just after you've uh, inadvertently opened up the interdimensional rift um mm. when you've you've thrown the test sample into that big um reactor um it's all going to shit everywhere barneys are just dying left right and center one gets sort of cut in half by a laser and then jibs fly everywhere and you're like you know i was 13 i was <laughs> younger than the sensors uh, were uh, were intending to uh, for people to to play it. and i was sort of quite traumatized by all this happening and i felt a real sense of like personal responsibility cuz it's like oh god this is all my fault i did this experiment <laughs> maybe there was a way to not you know just like do the experiment properly yeah I just, just have a normal was... day at work and go home <laughs> yeah yeah i would have loved that game um and again i didn't know <clears throat> i didn't know the rules in video games i didn't know what was possible so uh, so I felt a real sense of culpability for all the violence I was seeing before me and it really came to a head in that one particular scene where you press an elevator button and then you hear some Barneys uh, like stuck in the elevator and because you've pressed the button it now like it starts to descend but then like the cord the cable uh, is cut and then it like it plummets down to the bottom of the shaft and they both die and Jesus I just stood there like <laughs> open mouthed unable to deal with the guilt of what I'd done reloaded it I tried probably 10 times to save those Barneys I thought there must be there was something I was doing wrong I thought the game was giving me like you know negative feedback for my actions and trying to modify whatever I was doing um and I tried and tried and tried but it was obviously just a tiny little throwaway bit of slapstick (laughs) that completely derailed my my playthrough but um I think that moment specifically is emblematic of the the feeling of like absolute chaos and the the cinematic spectacle uh with which that chaos is um is conveyed. It was something yeah. that like 90s action movies were always doing as well like just throwing in some really grisly and dramatic deaths just for a bit of just for a bit of effect just to get your heart rate up a little bit like yeah. Yeah. like why 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 does that guy on Titanic have to fall and like sort of crack in half on the um on the big yeah like, it's a characteristic of disaster movies isn't it whether you watch yeah like, 2012 or wh- one of those where they, there's always like somebody in the car who gets smashed up by a big wave or you just mm. yeah they are they're all, they are almost like little punchlines aren't they and that's the way they are in half-life it's um these kind of um disturbing um slapstick moments where a scientist gets pulled into a vent and then giblets get kind of flushed out the other way yeah <laughs> like, I, don't, I didn't uh, like that either i always felt like there yeah. was some you know if i got there quicker i could press use and like pull him back out and then i'd have a body yeah. helping me um <laughs> yeah. I'd, I'd love that mod I'd, i wish there was a mod that was just a, like a one-to-one recreation of half-life but you could save every barney and you sort of collect them <laughs> and yeah. you, you know a bit like uh, tom francis did with the gnome in half-life 2 yeah just taking it all the way through like with him you could do that with every staff member of black mesa so by the end like you've got probably three or four hundred npcs following you around every way like bumping <laughs> into each other and just going, oh dear oh dear 
Um, <laughs> so so that's my that's my number four is the Barney's in the elevator. Number three is forget about Freeman. Um, mm. And I'm I, the level, but also the, like the narrative beat. I don't know what's going on with my voice. I'm, <clears throat> it's just given up on me. Uh, but yeah, that that narrative beat that twist feels like quite quite unprecedented, quite new to me for the time. That like okay, we've established who the adversaries are in this game. You're fighting all these aliens. The idea that then despite your best efforts to survive and you've been sort of fighting back the aliens yourself, this other, this new hostile force comes in that does not care about you and your endeavours at all and is just, like, sweeping the whole thing clean. I, don't, I can't think of a game that did anything like that before. Um, yeah, movies yeah. Were, movies were full of that sort of twist, but for a game to do that and then just after probably two or... I want to say two hours before you start fighting the... Um, the marines right to introduce yeah. this like a major component of the game oh it's just mind-blowing again you know yeah. when you're 13 and the the objective up till that point has been to you know make contact with the authorities you know make people yeah. aware of what's going on and survive and hopefully we will sort this out together and then to discover that you're uh not part of the solution but part of what needs to be uh wiped away is <laughs> quite shocking <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And then, of course, like it's a great showcase for the AI. Those soldiers mm. at the time, the way that they worked together and communicated what they were doing and would flush you out with grenades, would flank it's, you. It still stands up, that, doesn't it? Like, there isn't, yeah. for whatever reason, whether it's because, you know, shooters became um, driven by cover systems and enemies who hung back, it's quite, still, uh, I still find myself surprised by the soldiers in Half Life appearing at my flanks. And uh, you know, darting around in ways that AI doesn't seem to do in shooters now. Properly menacing, yeah. You can never relax with them, and and because they're so like they're so ubiquitous from that point where in which they're. I've just realised I'm not I'm not thinking about uh, forget about Freeman. I'm thinking about we've got hostiles. That's it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's the one. <laughs> <laughs> um. Well, let's salvage that. I think we can salvage that. Because also, forget about Freeman is another fantastic. Like it's a twist on the twist. <laughs> so just to be clear, originally, I'm being an idiot and I'm talking about we've got hostiles. The moment where um, where the Marines are introduced, which you were probably shouting at us for the last sort of five to ten minutes, but that wasn't that the right level name. Yeah, However, that's right. Forget about Freeman is is when the Marines give up, right? That's when yeah, which is like a twist on out. a twist. Yeah, yeah. like. Again, I just can't really think. I mean, I suppose Gears of War has done like similar stuff like this, but not with the same impact. But like, just at the point where, like, all right, we've established the Marines now, and we've even built on it with those assassins, and the Marines have been getting more vicious. They've started laying traps with the trip mines everywhere, and we're used to seeing these three-way fights between the Marines, uh, the aliens, and yourself, and you can just sort of sit back and watch those. That's like a major component of the game. And now the next thing, like narratively, it feels huge that they're giving up and you like you feel like either you've won or yeah. your um your plight is so hopeless against the aliens that even the Marines have given up, so you've completely lost. It feels like a weird Pyrrhic victory that after fighting the Marines for so long they've declared the fight unwinnable. What does that mean for you? Yeah. Um and again, I I, I yeah, other than maybe the Gears series, which has 
one of those sort of twists every hour or so. Um, I can't really think of games doing doing that, certainly to the, to the same uh, degree of effectiveness. So number three is we've got Hostiles slash Forget About Freeman, the double twist. <laughs> um, the, the, the plot arc of the Marines in general is, I guess, what I was thinking of there. Um, yeah. It was probably about seven thirty in the morning when I uh, when I wrote that list. Uh, <laughs> number two is the Tentacle Beast, mm. and I think this is like the defining moment of Half Life to me, mainly because I was stuck on it for several weeks, like <laughs> weeks at a time, trying to figure out because I it took me days to really accept that I couldn't just shoot it to death. And I thought maybe, all right, so I can't shoot it. Maybe it's grenades then. Maybe if I just keep like launching the grenades from my SMG and then all the grenades that I've got, you know, the frag grenades, and then probably there's somewhere else where I can find more grenades. So I tried that approach for a long time, just throwing all the explosives I could. And then it like, by the time it finally twigged that, no, it's this sort of like platforming puzzle really where, you have to descend levels without the tentacle beast hearing you and then like, you know, impaling you on its massive uh, beaks. Uh, Working your way down to basically get an enormous like, it's like a a rocket. What what even is it that it's living in? It's living in like a nuclear missile silo. It is living in a silo, yeah, like what you would launch a rocket from, but this weird enormous tentacled beast has taken residence in it like in the center mm. isn't it yeah yeah so yeah so you have to like make it to th- a minimum three maybe four distinct areas that sort of like sub levels within um the tentacle beasts uh domain bring all yeah. the sort of power back online get the fuel rigs um back live and then finally you get you make it back to the the sort of main console room that you began the level on hours ago or in my case weeks weeks and weeks ago and you just get to press the button and absolutely obliterate this thing um, yeah it's it's really it's an incredible sequence and like l- learning to understand the monster is a really interesting sort of like it's like a kind of gaming anthropology, and you 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 understand there's some kind of behaviour governing it that's unique, and to get past it, like you want to try and make not not make too much noise moving yourself, but also you can use grenades to make noise. If you want to like redirect it, um, also you can you know if you think you're close to a door, you can sort of dart to it quickly because it can't respond to you that quickly. It has mm. to turn itself. So you like you're not using this combination of things and knowledge of this creature to get the better of it, which is was definitely unprecedented in the FPS genre at the time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like if we compare it, you know, not to throw shade at Quake, but like let's compare it directly to like that that final boss battle. That was only two yeah. years previously in the same, you know. A, basically the same game engine right like you know it's gold source it's a really highly modified version of that of quake one's engine um the like the level of complexity around that boss encounter is like they don't they no no contest is it um Mm. yeah and just great at like completely modifying your behavior up to that point you're quite a gung-ho run and gun uh sort of research scientist like you know the game usually rewards you for keeping moving 
it's not really like a cover shootery sort of thing. You, if you get into too much trouble, you can always just launch a, a grenade from your underbarrel of your SMG to clear a, clear an area, or just like maintaining a constant sprint and like alternate firing your um your shotgun for mm. like a double burst. Like that'll get you out of too much trouble. So you never really have to stop and think too much. The only, the only thing that you know stops you in your tracks are the the platforming puzzles. And then at this point, it's like there's an enemy that makes you have to literally sort of cower and like inch along crouching without making a single sound it's like yeah. it's completely contrary to everything that you've been doing in the game and to that point um so just a fantastic bit of design visually incredibly spectacular it's like it's a bit like seymour like the um the plant from the little shop of horrors isn't it? it's like a big yeah, seymour. <laughs> yeah it definitely is but evolved. with beaks yeah evolved in yeah. the ideal uh ecology of zen presumably for that yeah. specific guy yeah yeah um and when you finally you've beaten it and then you like jump down through that silo hole to me that point onwards was like half-life 2 because i just spent so long stuck on it it was a dream <laughs> it was a wild fantasy to be able to hop down that hole and into whatever lay beyond that that moment so um yeah, yeah, that's that's my that's my moment number two. Uh, the best bit, absolutely and incontrovertibly, is the opening hour or so. In my yeah. mind, it's the the like the amount of the efficiency of world building and the size of the world that it builds with just with actually like quite a quite a small number of assets and scenes is absolutely staggering. It begins with that train ride where you see things that i mean you're introduced to the g-man you're introduced to barney you're introduced to the black mesa aesthetic like the the design language of that entire facility is established really well uh in in within sort of like five minutes uh what's the name of the fucking security guard barney (laughs) are they all barneys yeah yeah Oh, yeah, okay. I think so. I don't think there are any other names established. I don't know. Yeah, okay. <laughs> right, I'm just having. I don't know why this happens to me when I'm recording podcasts. <laughs> oh, I feel like that. Um, you know that like news reporter who like who did the word salad. I think she was reporting on maybe the Oscars. Yeah, and. And she's just like, well, a very heavy, hairy, blurred Catherine, good crawl, good love of object. Back to you. Well, a very, very heavy, uh, heavy divertation tonight. We had a very Darison bite. Let's go to Terrace Terrace and those for the bit. They had the pet. That happens to me sort of every. There is something about recording that does that to you, isn't there? Yeah. Like about every 20 minutes. Anyway. So, yes, you're introduced to the Barneys and everything else uh, very efficiently on that train ride. But then, even beyond that, what's what's my favourite thing about it? It's just like the conceit that you're just having a normal day at work. I really enjoyed that for some reason. <laughs> and being able to, like, mess around with, um, like, one of the scientists' uh, lunches in the microwave and blow it up. Or, yeah. like, just keep pressing the button on the vending machine so all the cans in the in the canteen like I just go all over the floor um don't know it just scratches my lizard brain in a, in a weird way that makes me uh full of joy um and 
it tees up that moment, the moment where everything changes so well. Uh, there's the the pacing is just absolutely perfect, and like in the um, in the hero's journey, right? Joseph Campbell's hero's journey, like it's a really like sort of classic and uh, um, oh, let me just Google it. <laughs> I made it in the Half-Life bit anyway, so... Yeah. <laughs> I'm making a problem only for myself. Oh! I see how it is. Past Phil. You just sit there Googling stuff that you can't remember. Leave it all for future Phil to worry about. Is that it? Or do you know what? No. No, not this time. Everyone's just going to have to sit there and listen. They're going to have to listen to you not being able to remember something quite basic about narrative theory. And do you know what else? You've been getting loads of Half-Life stuff wrong this episode, and it's really annoying to listen back to. Calling things Barneys that aren't Barneys, getting the levels wrong. This Have you ever played Half-Life? Honestly, you would better buck your ideas up in the back half of this thing. Otherwise, I don't know what I'm going to do. So you better start getting funny and accurate. Back to the show. Yes, right. Uh... The hero's journey, you like it begins with this call to adventure, which is just sort of Gordon Freeman, like you know, they're waiting for him in the test chamber, famously. Um, like he's got to do this experiment today. You hear like bits and bobs through some of the other scientists uh, that like there's something a bit significant about this particular experiment. Something might go yeah. wrong. Some of them seem a little bit worried about it. They're being and rushed, the... aren't they? They're being like yeah. they're rushed into performing an experiment by upper management. They don't feel quite prepared for it. They're using settings that maybe should it's got a sort of Chernobyl esque feel to yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. Um and like and so what happens next in that in that hero's journey um, classically, is like you cross the threshold and that begins the adventure. And like, I, don't, I can't think of a more sort of literal and classic and like clean <laughs> way of crossing the threshold than literally opening up an, an interdimensional portal and like actually seeing what lies beyond that threshold and those flashes. Once you, uh, once everything goes wrong and things start exploding in the test chamber, then you're like briefly teleported. Um, out to to Nihilinth and you're sort of surrounded by Vortigaunts momentarily you think you're about to die and then you're teleported back um, so it's it's a great way of crossing the threshold and then everything that lies beyond that game um, that moment is is chaos and violence and anarchy and life is incredibly cheap you know if a, if a if a Barney dropped down dead in front of you just on your way from like the train to the <laughs> the front desk it would be horrific you'd be <laughs> yeah. like oh my god like what what's happened but after you've crossed the threshold, life becomes incredibly cheap, and you're just used to seeing jibs everywhere. And every NPC that follows you for a bit, you know their days are numbered, and you're going to see them explode in viscera before too long. Um, yeah, it's the contrast, isn't it, that makes it so effective? The juxtaposition between the sort of mundane corporate office life, which you know, I can't help but wonder whether you know the experience of Gabe Newell and others at Microsoft. <laughs> fed into that, yeah. that idea of just kind of being a, a, a very small cog in this enormous um, well-paid machine and um, yeah and to have that sort of come apart is absolutely terrifying it's the kind of like um, it's the kind of thing I associate with a Dishonored or something from Arcane these days where you have like 
it's not just all hostile areas. You have these sort of grey spaces where nothing has kicked off, but it feels like it might. And mm. um, yeah, that's a really, really special kind of grounding technique. I think, and it was really smart of them to think to do that. They had all these ruined levels, and they had the master stroke of, oh, let's just uh, unruin them and uh, yeah, <laughs> make it make it look like it it would have done before this kicked off, and had this whole intro sequence preceding the experiment. I'm I'm still frustrated that games don't do that more, or they don't um, they don't commit to it for slightly longer, like. Deus Ex yeah. Revolution has a really similar opening, right? Where like everything's fine in this really futuristic laboratory for about seven minutes. I would have liked to have spent a bit more time living the normal life and just like getting a feel for what the world is like in this like near future yeah. before everything goes to shit. I think it's so valuable. It's so grounding. Um, but I, you know, I can understand why games don't like. Yeah, you you can't you can't implement much action at all until everything goes wrong. Um, but I think I think games can trust us a little bit more to hold, you know, for our attention to stick around long enough for them to ground us in a world for an hour or so before we start like picking up guns and shooting everything back to normal, you know. Um, yeah, I think a lot of games mimicked this intro afterwards, right? But they maybe didn't quite get it a lot of the time. They thought, oh, it's about being on a train and uh, yeah. watching things. <laughs> I was like, yeah. no, that's sort of a you know that's part of the picture the point is that it's um you're being grounded in what feels like a real world and that's maintained throughout half-life that you're getting a cross-section of what feels like a real world that always follows you know its own rules so that mm. it transcends being in these set of corridors even though you know that's what you're in it always feels like you're just seeing part of a whole exactly um so difficult job to try and boil down Half-Life into five defining moments because it's... I mean, even even within those five moments that I've mentioned, there are probably five moments, you know, within each that <laughs> that I can yeah. talk about and that feel distinct and are quite memorable. It's, yeah. it's the absolute master of making making memories and making you feel like you're going on a journey and and that there's meaning to every new area that you, um, that you reach. Um, but that's the best moments anyway. And then let's... Let's have a, another little uh, musical interlude. And then, Jeremy, I've also prepared uh, my favourite sounds from Half-Life. I've done a slightly different approach to you, but I think that'll be quite fun. So in a second, let's get into that, shall we? Mm, looking forward to it. <laughs> so where is so there will still be 10 points on offer for you so just to recap in the quake half of this episode phil got seven out of a possible 10 points not um, bad at all you will also have a maximum of 10 for if you will get two points for guessing the the phil version 
mm-hmm. you'll get one point for correctly identifying the, the actual in-game sample version. Um, it's very generous. So, yeah. But, however, what I've done is that I've I've recorded my fill versions. So I'm not I'm not going to be able to do it live for you because I've sort of, like, layered sounds on each other to try and get them oh, as close course, as possible. Yeah. I mean, that's going like to make a, it easier for me, isn't it? You just kind of got raw... I would hope so. Yeah, Yeah, I've created collages. Think of me as a sculptor of virtual um, places and things. (laughs) Um, And yeah, I'm like a human mixing desk that's just like really gone into the the granularity of each each noise and like recreated it. um, Yeah. Absolutely authentically as much as as possible, even some quite complex um, sounds. So with that in mind, Jeremy... Um, here is uh, your first sound. Morning, Dr. Freeman. <laughs> I mean, that's not strictly a sound effect, is it? What's <laughs> <laughs> that, guys? Morning, Dr. Freeman. That's, uh, that's Barney. That's Barney. <laughs> I just I God. went into the minute details of this game and just recreated every... <laughs> Every facet that I could find from the audio. Um, no, that's a that's a joke one. Um, oh, very good. I just, that's just a little warm up, you know. Um, sure. I just wanted to sure. test that I could do it. I just wanted to know in my heart that I could that I could make the Barney noise if I wanted to. Um, so yes, next next is the proper one. Okay, so this is the proper first uh, sound of the test. This is Half Life sound effect one. That's very good. All voice. All voice for uh, a sort of male three-part acapella. And that's a that's a very good version of the. Um, Oh no! Which charging station is it? I think they probably sound the same. It's the health charging station, right? Uh, rather than the HEV suit. Oh, do it! It is the health charging station. Yes, you're correct. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's great. That's such a such a a distinct collection of noises. So yeah, the the charging station does sound pretty similar. Um, but yeah, you are you are correct in identifying the uh, that's the health. Uh, charger so Mm. well done that's two points for you for anyone playing at home here is the actual noise from in-game so you know quite quite close oh yeah Um, I feel better already having heard that that's flagging a lot today and I'm uh that's topped me right up. You'd be you'd be lucky to be able to charge for that long, wouldn't you? In game, like, oh it yeah, never that's... seems to quite. It always seems to run out a little before that. <laughs> yeah, you're always at like eighty-seven and about yeah. thirty in the HEV suit. Yeah. Uh, so you're two for two, having correctly identified the fill version of Half Life mm. Sound One. Here is Half Life Sound Number Two. <laughs> What noise is that? That's great. Uh, I don't know what these little guys are called, but they're the 
dog-like enemies who let off a little little shockwave if you let them get too close to you and build up as you've um, beautifully um, <laughs> you have a little, little sort of charge up phase and they, they sort of yip away and then yeah they unleash a little shockwave they're That's sort of dog like but they're also like they don't have faces do they so um, that lets they're you know they're called the alien. hound eyes that's their official name I think I went by some I used to call them something else because I think in like in PC Gamers review of it they called them something like the Sonic Dogs or something, <laughs> something that's you know that off brand <laughs> um, so I always knew them as that but apparently yeah the uh, the official name is the Hound Eye um, okay. so you're you're four for four I've been if anything too helpful um, yeah, I think you have yeah really stitched myself up uh, but let's listen to the the real version of the Hound Eye take it away Hound Eyes It sounds like Formula One when you hear it all back to back like that. Yeah, it's quite, a, quite overwhelming. Very alarming noises. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, all right, so a perfect score so far. Let's move on to yes. Half Life Sound Three. I think this one's a little bit more difficult. Uh, here's the Phil version. Bang 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 slight slight sort of hint of Alan Partridge to that. What is that? Yeah, I think that one's a little bit trickier. The I think the end part is definitely the biggest clue there. Oh oh oh! I think it is your favourite tentacle monster. I think it's in its. It's sort of like listening and dormant phases, and yes. it's hammering its beaks against the metal platforms of the uh, exactly missile silo in which it lives. That's exactly it. Yes, well done. So you're now uh, six for six, Jeremy. Oh man, crikey! Did do your extra work is my gain, truly. <laughs> uh, okay, let's hear the uh, the real life version of the tentacle sounds. Yeah, well, there you go. You know, it's, it sort of sounds like a low voiced whale, and then uh, a load of like metal things falling out of a big bag. It's very um, hairy. I had a moment in the middle of that where I thought, "What are we, what are we doing? Like, what even is our job? This is such a strange thing to be listening to." <laughs> well, the, <laughs> think of me having to record it. That was my <laughs> Sunday morning. Just going. <laughs> <laughs> Did that sound good enough? Do I need to do it again? Yeah, um, <laughs> a strange thing that we do, isn't it? Anyway, you're, let's not bog ourselves down in that reality. You're six for six here, Jeremy. You're one for the perfect game. Yes. The stakes are incredibly high. We're going into wow. sound four. I think this is my personal favourite. I'm incredibly pr- proud of this. It's a really specific sound. Uh, oh, but God, I'm just, I'm just really pleased with it. Just really pleased. Let's hear it. <laughs> oh, it's a great noise. I can't. I can't quite place it what yet. What noise I'm is gonna, that? What's I'm going to hear it again. 
Okay. What is it? Who is it? Who are you? Uh, <laughs> mm. I will give you a clue in that the noise is being generated not by an enemy, but by you or part of your arsenal. Right. So it's a weapon. I would have thought. I don't know, I think I'm going to have to hear the actual effect, see if that jogs my memory. Okay, well, the file name is gives it away what it is, so... Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I can see... I can see that says the Tau Cannon. <laughs> but I don't, I don't think I would have got it. I don't think I would have got it. I, mean, I clearly haven't used it enough. Well, that that's actually my point with those. All of those later, like energy based weapons, like the the experimental weapons, I never fucking used them because mm. you just always think like, oh, I'll save that until like there's a real like imperative to use it because this is obviously like a serious weapon. Yeah, and... you don't have a lot of ammo either. Yeah, so you just take it to your grave. You just pick it up, <laughs> never use it, keep on using the shotgun and the SMG. <laughs> and then, like the the this is basically that's the Tau cannon, aka the Gorse gun. Oh um, sure, I have used it. I have used it, but yeah, I wouldn't have. Uh, yeah, clearly um, a sort of rare enough occurrence that I, it was a great impression, though. I also don't think I've ever killed anything in Half Life with those little. What are they called? No, 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 no! You don't. No more getting Half Life wrong. Goodness sake! This is supposed to be your favourite game. You are on thin ice, Ivanyuk. If you don't come up with the name of these things that you're thinking of, so help me. Yeah, little sort of like cretins that you... Oh, you little pick. bugs, you sort of throw them and they run towards the enemy and they explode, which sounds like that's an easy kill, but it never quite works out that way, does it? never does, does it? No, they're used <laughs> snarks, they're called. Good! Yeah. yeah, and you can you can just... I quite like to just get them out and watch them wriggle around in my hand for a bit, but if you need to take yeah. something down, it's a great animation. useless. Yeah. yeah, it's true. Um, so, in fact, you are you can no longer get the perfect score, but you can you can still beat me if mm. you correctly identify this final noise. You will be on eight out of a total of possible ten points, oh, thereby God. taking the entire plaudits, spoils, prizes, and everything else. With that in mind, Jeremy, are you ready to hear Half Life Sound Five? It's a lot of pressure. Come on, let's do it. Here we go. <laughs> oh, wow. It's a mach- it's like a machine noise. It's like a sort of utility noise. You can hear that again. It's over in you're a flash. In, you're thinking along, along the right lines, yeah. It's... It's, I feel like I'm hitting E or something. Like I'm, I'm just pressing some kind I'm of. I'm giving key. that. Yeah, I'm giving you that. That is when you hit E and something works. So, oh. <laughs> rather than just like the dung dung bam. Yeah, yeah. Uh, then that noise is like when you actually like open a door or something. That's yeah. a successful use of of the use button, basically. Yeah. Um, Very satisfying. So, so yeah, I'll give you that. That's eight out of ten points, Jeremy. You've taken oh. the entire quiz. You've done it. Quake is right the better game. The wire. <laughs> oh, um, let's like play to that. Thank, um... uh, the Hound Eye. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
wherever they are today. Uh, let's play that sound effect just for anybody playing along at home. And there it was. Um, Beautiful. So good. Very so that's why Half Life's so good, anyway, because it's got those five noises in it, um, <laughs> and also some levels whose names that I can't remember that are, that are good uh, because things happen in them that uh, that are that are good. Um, I guess this is a bit where we get into like the the nitty gritty of the game and, and and why it's good. What I wanted to do is actually talk about the mods that came out of this because aside from the game itself, like it's famous for having birthed some of the biggest multiplayer IPs yeah. of all time. Uh, I'd say top of that list is probably CS:GO because it's it's still going or soon to be Counter Strike Two uh, mm. in the new in the new Source latest version of Source engine. That all came about as a as a mod that released in various like very very early alphas in '99 and then um, and, and then a 1.0 in 2000 and so little of it has changed since and like people are still playing Dust Two 23 years later uh, that's that's pretty incredible and a lot of the weapon sound effects in in uh, like Counter Strike up to 1.6 it's all the Half Life sound effects and like you press use you still get a doom. Uh, mm. So that's that's great. That's a that's a cool bit of lineage. Um, Team Fortress Two is also you know you can trace that all the way back to. I mean, interestingly, given this podcast, you could trace it all the way back to Quake One. There's um, our answer. Quake's the best yeah. game. Yeah, no, that's true. <laughs> but, and it was it was sort yeah. of brought up, wasn't it? By uh, yeah, by Valve. So, very so smart move. Team Fortress was originally a very popular class based. Um, Team team deathmatch uh, mod for for Quake One, yeah. Valve bought it up. I think there was a Quake Two version of Team Fortress. Maybe I might be making that up, but there was certainly Team Fortress Classic, which was the Half Life um, iteration of that game. I played a lot of that. That was maybe the first like multiplayer game that I properly got into. I remember like becoming friends with a guy who used to like make metal songs out of MIDI, and he mm. would just like. We'd spend a match. He'd like teach me how to be a good heavy, and then he would send me this MIDI files like and I'd email him back. We're like, yeah, sounds cool, man. And then, of course, you know, being part of Valve's property, Team Fortress Two was going to arrive in about two thousand and one-ish, and then just kept slipping, kept slipping, kept slipping, and then released as part of the orange box and blew everyone's minds and we can all thank Half-Life for uh for the uh for the orange box. Yeah, hard to uh, imagine uh hero shooters like Overwatch without Team Fortress, I would say. Exactly. Um but don't hold that against it because uh, <laughs> Team Fortress was a, was a good game in its own right. Um but I was super into uh a lot of the single player mods uh and I remember in particular my favorite was uh they hunger. Did you ever play these? These no, zombie. No, I, I heard of this one though. Yeah. Yeah. So it was it was released on like the PC Gamer demo discs. I think it might have been PC Gamer US that sort of bankrolled this project somehow. Yeah. Uh, and it was a sort of episodic retelling of um, you know the, like the Romero style zombie yeah. movies. It was yeah, all very the schlocky, other Romero. Very... Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, like very pulp fictiony. Um, and but like a really impressive total conversion so you know the pistol it had the same like sound library same sound effects but um but was reskinned i think all of the weapons were reskinned 
the zombies sounded the same, moved the same, behaved the same, but were slightly reskinned. Uh, I remember the very beginning of the first They Hunger. The zombies actually do pull it like you end up in probably enough like crashing in a cemetery and um yeah and the zombies like are popping up out of the ground which i thought was super cool at the time and like something that didn't really you know the zombies burst out of the walls in half-life but they didn't emerge from the ground Mm. um rising from their graves it was great like a great atmosphere piece um as always for something that i'm you know want to talk about uh it just it really nailed the tone of those um the sort of 70s romero zombie horror uh super good but there was like there was an entire scene of like there was action half-life where you could sort of dual wield weapons it was like it was um you know online multiplayer but yeah you could sort of do all the like john woo blood opera sort of stuff there was day of defeat the world war Two uh team deathmatch game yeah God, what else was there there was a lot going on i'm trying to remember some of the other really good um single player half-life mods and that noise that you can po- probably hear is me googling them <laughs> <laughs> because the oh USS Dark Star of course Dark oh, Star was great one. yeah these uh, so I, I again I have to thank uh, PC Gamer UK magazine for putting all of these mods onto their demo discs because I just wasn't very internet literate surprisingly enough um back in in those <laughs> days so I didn't know where all these mods were popping up I would never have been able to sort of find them and and curate them um but they they would pop up in a in a special section quite regularly on PC gamer demo discs and I would uh dutifully play them all and there were some absolute belters in there and yeah dark star USS dark star was a really good one uh, Lambda Wars was a good one. Um, in fact, Gunman Chronicles. Do you remember that? That began as just a yeah, completely yeah. amateur um, Half Life mod. Uh, I mean, there are so many. I'm looking through a big list of them here. Azure Sheep was quite a quite a popular one at the time. But I would say, oh, Wanted as well. Wanted was a great. It was a super janky. Uh, Wild West multiplayer game. You're sort of like <laughs> dueling pistols, um, yeah. but yeah, they they hunger was, uh, in my opinion, the cream of the crop. Uh, and I think there were like three different episodes. It, it lost its way towards the end slightly, but um, but my goodness, that was good fun and like incredible value for money if you're a cash strapped 13, 14 year old boy because the game just kept getting bigger with all this free stuff that kept appearing for it and it became yeah. I guess a bit like what Minecraft or Roblox is now it's like it became just a sort of a foundation or a base for all this multitude of different experiences yeah um, and all these threads carrying in, into the future um, yeah should we talk briefly about Black Mesa because I know that that's you have very mixed feelings about um, I mean yeah. for those who don't know it's a, it's a kind of modern day um, remake of the original Half-Life it started as a sort of one for one-ish remake and over time um, kind of grew in ambition and you can kind of see that like in the later segments it becomes its own thing and um, sort of strays from the blueprint quite a bit um, but you know it's it's, it's, it's acclaimed, it's well liked but for you it's not uh, you're not so keen yeah. are you? Yeah and this all began uh, way back in when was 
when did this game when was Black Mesa I think it was like 2012 2013 when Black Mesa first started like picking up attention as this yeah, like, incredible source engine remake and I thought well brilliant because I hadn't touched Half-Life I've left it as this like sacred memory hadn't touched it since I'd completed it back in 1999 and I thought this is the perfect um, opportunity and excuse to go back and replay it so I um I downloaded it and I started playing it and I thought, oh, but that's slightly different. And like the voice lines that the staff around Black Mesa have is just like a little bit different. And the layout was pretty much the same, but like the stuff on the walls was a bit different and it just wasn't giving me the the, the nostalgia that I wanted. Yeah. And I thought, what I, what, what I want really is to just play the original Half-Life. That still exists. Nothing's going to give me the memories back like that original game. So yeah. So I did that, and that that actually began this like years long journey of of rebuilding my first uh, PC to play Half Life on, uh, which took like a long time to source all the parts. But but yeah, I did that, and then, and then that's how I you know want to play Half Life really is to keep that memory absolutely sacrosanct. But then last year I thought, come on, grow up, Phil. Actually, just play Black Mesa on its own terms. I'm sure you'll still enjoy it. And truth be told, I did enjoy it. I'm glad I played it. Um, there are lots of cool additions. It's like it's miraculous what they've done, like how how well they've managed to translate the sense of place um, from that original game into the Source engine. There are some really spectacular graphical um, scenes and effects. Uh, it does loads really, really well, but in the moments where it starts to diverge slightly from the Source material, my teeth just set on edge, and that happens more and more <laughs> as time goes on. And I think it is actually around Forget About Freeman where they like they really go off script and like really extend certain sequences. Yeah, uh, and that's when Gordon I, has a has a dramatic monologue. He has a soliloquy, doesn't he? And he just, <laughs> uh, eventually breaks into song. Yeah, I didn't like the musical. I know a lot of people love the <laughs> musical number. Uh, I didn't like it. It felt quite incongruous to me. And then. Yeah, they, they redid Zen completely. I mean, the famously bad... I mean, we haven't even talked about it, have we? That Like, that's how... <laughs> it's like sort of a footnote in Half-Life's history. They're like, yeah. this uncomfortable truth that it ends on a real downer because the last... The back the back two or three hours of the game are in this, like, floaty alien world where yeah. it doesn't do anything like the same world building. It doesn't ground you in this, like, fascinating environment. It's just these disparate sort of bounce pads uh aliens that you fought before except for the gonark that's pretty cool the gonark fight um i, I never and, hated and- it as much as as is standard i don't think like i you know i've always had a weakness for sort of first person platforming that you know isn't always echoed among the general populace i discovered that again when doom eternal came out and i thought it was an absolute blinder and some people couldn't stand the jumpy yeah. bits in between the fights uh, and there's also like an, a cool element of zen where if I'm not mistaken like you come across bodies of other Gordons right there's some kind of like weird yes. multiversal element that's quite creepy that's right yeah yeah but um, I mean it's certainly not the best sequence in the game no yeah, yeah I, I guess I, I, I would agree that I, d- I never really hated it I wasn't really sophisticated enough to have an opinion on it either way. <laughs> <But> in <laughs> retrospect, I just didn't enjoy it as much as the stuff uh, on Earth. 
Uh, however, yeah, Zen is really expanded and totally reworked in Black Mesa. And a lot of people really like the Gonark fight now. Um, mm. Interestingly, I'm not sure if I made this up. Did I make this up, Jeremy? That they deliberately, Valve originally deliberately made the Gonark look testicular to freak us out as players because they, you know, the idea was the average video game player at that time was like a teenage boy. That was, as you know, the insight that the industry had. So they thought it would be very uncomfortable for teenage boys to be shooting this massive testicle. Have I, have I invented that? <laughs> I don't know. It's a great rumour <laughs> of so. That, if anybody it, has any insights on that, I've read that somewhere, maybe in a dream. Is um, that the giant alien baby? Is this the boss we're talking about? No, the Gonark is just like, one. it really does look like a, a testicle on four legs. It's like a giant head crab with a big bollock in the middle <laughs> and, it, and it secretes other head crabs as you're fighting it yeah um, well it's true so, that the, the greatest fear of a teenage boy is being hit in the bollocks so very true and it happens yeah. a lot like <laughs> very rarely happens these days but when you're a teenager it's like almost a daily occurrence oh, so I'm not sure a, whether that... a young teenager there was a trend for like little chains you know it was the era of new metal <laughs> and um, everyone was wearing little chains on their jeans and stuff yeah yeah. Not for any particular reason, just the sort of accessory. And uh, I remember I'd, I'd be swinging that around and and accidentally hit myself in the... Uh, in the what's the name of the boss again? The Gonarks. Right in the Gonarks. Yeah. <laughs> Clocked it right in the Gonarks. Mm. Um, yeah, let us know on Discord if I'm talking Absolute Breeze or whether there's something <laughs> in that. I'm going to have to re- read about that afterwards. I'm sure I read that somewhere. Anyway, do you know what, Pastville? I'm going to give you a pass on that because I've been doing some reading and the Gonark was originally intended to resemble a giant testicle. Uh, at Gabe Newell's behest, it was intended as a sort of a massive 20-foot spider with an enormous testicle hanging underneath it. So that bit is correct. The bit about homophobia relates to a different and cut enemy called Mr. Friendly which was going to uh, have an actual penis and kind of grab hold of you and display quite sexual behaviour, which, for everyone's benefit, was eventually cut. Um, I can't help but notice that we've forgotten most of the segments that we usually put in the podcast, uh, including the results of the previous Song Wars, uh, reading out lovely feedback from Discord and basically everything else that we've ever done in in previous episodes. So sorry about that. Um, However... I do think that this last review wars is quite good, so it almost makes up for the fact that this back half, the, the Half-Life um, episode, is, has been an absolute shambles. So um, thanks for joining us on this um, on this journey. It's um, I can only apologise, really, um, and enjoy the last few minutes of it. Black Crowbar Collective really have expanded uh, the those final missions. I would say Zen goes on for, I don't know, it felt like four hours to me. And I didn't like that uh, because I didn't feel any sense of nostalgia anymore. Like, And because I've played so many Half-Life mods, I felt like I was just playing another Half-Life mod, you know? Like, yeah. Just yeah. imagining what what goes on on this alien world that I'm not very engaged with. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I'm glad it exists. I'm really glad it exists. It's very impressive. They obviously understand Half-Life in ways that I don't. 
and we'll never understand, right? If they can, if they can recreate it so expertly in Source Engine, they are the experts, and I'm not. So absolutely <laughs> have to preface my opinions and preferences uh, with that. But yeah, for me, I think I just um, the purpose of playing an old classic game like that is to like extract the maximum nostalgia and good memories out of it, and the original will yeah. always be the best at doing that for me. That's just my personal take on it, and and so the more that it went off the um, off the songbook and started riffing, uh, the less I was enjoying it personally. I think that's absolutely fair enough. Is it uh, time for your review war? Do you think? Oh God, I'd love to. I'm really pleased with this review war. I think this is going to probably wrap up this episode. If anyone's still listening and alive at this point, what we're we like one fifty minutes plus. Um, then yeah. we're so glad that you've joined us on this journey. We hope that you have enjoyed it, not just this episode, but the entire series. It's been an absolute blast. I've rarely been pleased with my review or contributions because I've, let's be honest, phoned them in quite often or I've just copied you, but a week later. Um, <laughs> this time, I have done that again, but I think I've done it to a really good effect. I've copied something that you've done. Uh, there's a there's a dodgy bit of like of looping um, that I can't help but hear every time I listen to it back, which I'm not pleased with. Otherwise, I like this, and I'll tell you for why. What I've done is, rather than write something myself, I've gone back and actually I read the original PC Gamer review of Half-Life. This is where mm. it all began for me. Like This is why I had ended up like working in, in the games industry, it was because of this one issue of PC Gamer magazine. And this review was the first that I read, and I read it again and again and again every day for two weeks between uh, picking up this magazine and, and Christmas time when I was, you know, going to be getting Half Life. It was just like how I hyped myself up, the same yeah. way that, like, you know, you might rewatch the Starfield trailer every day. This review was like absolutely formative for me. It was uh, Mark Donald's review of Half Life in uh, issue sixty-three of PC Gamer UK. That was the November. Uh, 1998 issue so I thought I'd just use that um, and just read it out <laughs> because I want to share that with everybody and like just uh, sprinkle a bit of like Review War style music on, on the top of it but just as a thank you to, to PC Gamer Magazine and a thank you to Mark Donald and a celebration of like I guess why we even had the idea for Review War because we uh we love the beginnings of '90s game reviews. So yeah. that's I feel my like thinking. I should be calling you out for cheating, but I really like <laughs> this idea, <laughs> and I'm looking forward I'll to also, hearing it. I found I found somewhere that like has uh, not PDFs, but like a pretty decent sort of um, photographs of each page of this review. And if I remember, I'll drop them in the Discord for everybody, oh, um, nice. so that you can you can read along with this because it's just. It's great. It's a great little moment in time. So that explains this review war. I hope everybody enjoys. When passage through the shadowy corridors of the future publishing complex becomes fraught with the danger of entanglement in knots of seen-it-all journalists urgently and excitingly relating anecdotes to each other about things that happen to them in a game, you know you're dealing with a powerful force. That force is Half-Life which is about all you'll have left by the time you've finished it. Since it's arrived through the ventilation system, the whole building has come down with Half-Life, as if it's an airborne disease in a spacesuit. 
it would not be alarmist to say that something akin to half-life fever has broken out, an infectious black death crossed with Chinese flu-type strain, whose symptoms include taking days off work, pulling down the blinds and pretending not to be in just to play it some more, and then babbling uncontrollably about it whenever your doctor's note is exposed as an obvious forgery. Indeed, when Half-Life first turned up, Matt claimed he only had 24 hours to live and therefore had to play it all day. As such transparent behaviour indicates, the 3D shooter debate is no longer about Quake 2 versus Unreal. Half-Life silences all dissent by being so utterly and resoundingly better than either of them that it's difficult to come to terms with. Attempting to do so can only lead to one conclusion. Half-Life is the best 3D game in existence. So that's <laughs> no, it's <laughs> review was this episode. Oh, um, I felt like we were at the end of PC gaming, like we were <laughs> exactly. the encore of PC gaming. <laughs> Such a fitting yeah. end of the podcast. <laughs> Just a, yeah, like a, a seismic moment for for PC gaming. I love that 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 bit. Uh, Half Life is the best three D game in existence. That's in bold. It's its own paragraph, <laughs> and it's in bold in the, in the copy. <laughs> And I just that love would that, never like, get through the subs today. <laughs> no, imagine that handing that in. If I like, what was the last game I reviewed? I think it was The Last of Us. If I was just like, yeah, just put that in bold. Say it's the best game that's ever been made. Yeah, that has <laughs> to be in bold. If it's not in bold, don't use it and don't pay me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I thought that was, uh, you know, sort of full circle, right? Like that that first bit of review uh, means a lot to me. And it felt like a nice celebratory tone to to go out on. Um, yeah. So thank you everyone great. for joining us. Oh, like that, the building has come down with Half Life. It really captures the the phenomenon, doesn't it? Yeah. As well as what the game actually is, it's beautiful. It's what magazines were were so good at is is like putting you there in the office with everyone and making you feel like one of the one of the team. Like yeah. oh, you know, Matt Matt's been pretending that he's been ill, or like you know, it's. It's been the talk of the office. You just feel like you're there with them, and you're you're just one of the the gang of friends. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, good intro. I'm not sure about that first. The first sentence is pretty long. <laughs> A lot of clauses in that first sentence. I wonder if Mark Donald himself would have, uh, uh, in in latter days, subbed that out. Uh, that'd yeah. be interesting. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I guess that's it. <laughs> that's, yeah. Uh, Series quite a bit done. Of content. Series, Series done. Will we be yeah. back like Fleabag with a, a new conceit um, to to blow the world away with? We, yeah, we'll we would to love come to come up with a sexy vicar for a, for a yeah. new series. I think that's well within our wheelhouse. We've got a, a sexy vicar conceit <laughs> in us. Um, so yeah, li- you know, keep an eye peeled on the, on the Discord or, or or for you know Jeremy popping up as a 
as a conspicuous guest to talk about some new stuff that we're going to do or you know maybe we'll be doing it as part of the back page in future but uh thank you to everybody who's uh who's listened um yeah we I hope you've enjoyed been, uh, super encouraging the whole way along to have everyone you know pitching in with their feedback it's been really good yeah we've really enjoyed it absolutely yeah it's meant a lot like i know i haven't been uh on the discord an awful lot but <laughs> i have i have read it i have read all the nice yeah. stuff i appreciate people taking their time out of their of their days to like write nice things about something that we've made so uh that's been cool we will catch you in some future form um but until then it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from him bye bye half-life such a good game and it's all great. Half life. Half life. Something <laughs> crabs out the gate. <laughs>